Hey everybody, welcome to the Archie Sonic Digest. Um, so folks, I'm gonna just be 100% honest with you. In a good world, in a much better reality, we wouldn't be doing this episode, right? We would have finished the Worlds Collide crossover and then we just moved on to 252 with nothing to say for it. However, we don't live in a good world and everything is a nightmare. So, if you remember, last time we did a special episode, we talked about Ken Penders and... We carefully omitted one thing that was extremely relevant, but we didn't want to talk about it right there to sort of ruin the mood of the future. That mood, unfortunately, has to be ruined now. In short, Ken Penders very infamously got himself involved in a variety of different lawsuits with Sega, Archie Comics Publications, etc., etc. And now is the time for me, Naren, to go through the timeline, the history of it all, and then break everything down. That is what I would normally say if this was going to be cut and dry reading of the facts. Because the reason we push this a little further ahead, we have the court documents. We, from our source, have obtained the Archie versus Penders court documents directly from the Southern District Court of New York. It does not appear to be everything... But from what I estimate, it's about 90% of the court documents. And folks, we are going to blow this case wide open. Um, I think it's important to talk about a couple of things before we begin. As we had mentioned previously, uh, which is going to be a little out of order, you know, in in our release, but in the full watch order, um, 247 issues of comics, an entire Knuckles comic, all of Sonic Universe, all 50 issues of Sonic Universe... All of the spinoffs, all of the super specials, gone. All of them. So from this point forward, clean slate. With that being said, we have to sort of talk about how we're going to talk in this episode. If you are not a law major, or if you have never dealt with a lawsuit before, which I would imagine most of you have not, you have to have a sort of language when you talk about these things. Because when you are talking about legal precedent... Unfortunately, with how the United States government works and how the legal system works, you have to refer to things in specific ways in order to not be sued for a variety of things. But defamation is the most important one where we can sit here and tear down penders all we want in a casual sense. But when we talk about it from a legal perspective, it can be interpreted as attacking his character. And that can lead to legitimate court reasons. So uh, we do not want to get sued. Uh, We are broke. Uh, We are hardworking individuals who just like to produce content for a stupid Sonic comic on the uh, the internet. If you hear us use more kind words, more, more, more curt words when we talk about Ken in the proceedings, keep in mind, we are doing this to protect ourselves. It is very, very, very important that you understand this going into it. 
So you do not think that our sort of feelings and thoughts are conflicting. So keep that in mind. Yes, and also this episode will be divided into, I like to call them, four acts. First act will be the Ken Penders lawsuit. Before we go, we also need to thank our source. We need to thank him very, 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 very much. Off, we really want to thank you for what you did for us. We really appreciate it. We think that you're a uh, wonderful individual who really came in clutch. As as per his request, uh, we want to shout out Off's fan comic, Sonic Legacy, which you can go and read now. Uh, I read the first chapter. Not half bad, actually. Definitely worth a read. Thank you, Off. Uh, we saw the early posts on Twitter, and we really want to thank you for collaborating and uh, giving us access to all of this. I want to say a little note here. The timeline that I have constructed, the source that I used, is pretty kind to Ken Penders and his description of events. But despite the bias, it is a clear roadmap for the chain of events. So until we get to the point where we start actually digging into the documents, take it with a grain of salt, alright? So let's begin at the very beginning. Now... Ken understood at the start that this is a licensed comic, so all the works that he or any other creators did for the book would have the rights of it to be in the hands of Sega, provided the paperwork was done right, which is very common practice for any sort of licensed work, right? So when working on the book, Ken claimed that part of the contract Sega has with Archie stipulates any and all characters created in the Sonic & Knuckles comic books become property of Sega. Thus, Sega now owns everything I created in the Knuckles series, including such fan favorites as Locke, Laura Lee, Julie Sue, to say nothing of characters like Jeffrey St. John, Hershey, Dr. Quack, and Robbo the Hedge, to name but a few. As a professional, I knew that going in and had no qualms at the time. Quote. Just so we're clear, this is what Ken said when he was working on the book. Because Archie had only a license to Sonic... In theory, Sega would be able to allow any other company to reprint the Archie books. However, the specific 1992 agreement gave Archie exclusive publishing rights for Sonic Comics. That's going to be important later. Keep that in mind. Archie Comics says, Penders signed a work-for-hire contract. Under such contracts, a creator is paid a flat fee for producing content. And as follows, everything created becomes the property of the employer or a third party in this case Sega, under said contracts. A creator does not receive further compensation or royalties if their work is reprinted or reused in future mediums. This is not salaried. At any point, a publisher can just decide to stop asking a creator to submit work. However, also important to note that these kinds of contracts, that specifically these no royalties types of contracts, are not the norm in the industry for creators working on these kinds of titles. For the record. Except in Florida, where because Florida is a uh, right-to-work state, uh, work-for-hire is a very uh, exceedingly used and loosely used thing over here to um, screw over employees. A little bit of of side lore. But one situation on this type of contract resulted in an issue for Archie before this, ironically enough. Dan DiCarlo worked for Archie Comics for 43 years. In that time, he created the modern look for the Archie book. He also created the Josie and the Pussycats characters, along with Cheryl Blossom and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In 2001, when a Josie and the Pussycats movie was in production, DiCarlo sought royalties for the use of his creations, leading to Archie ending his decades-long employment. 
When brought as a formal legal dispute, the court ruled in Archie's favor, determining that DiCarlo had done work for hire. DiCarlo died later that year. Rest in, rest, in, rest in peace, man. Despite that, the Josie and the Pussycats movie and the live-action Sabrina the Teenage Witch TV show gave credit to DiCarlo as creator and co-creator, respectively. Archie attempted to use this DiCarlo's case as the precedent in the Penders dispute. Now, okay, Archie sued Ken, which we will talk about why in, in, in a bit, but it is a very, 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 like, on-the-nose thing to remember that they had precedent, which is why they were so eager to be like, yeah, we have it. At least from their perspective. Keep in mind, we are only saying that they have him from their perspective. From 1997 to 99, Ken Penders... As we know, solely wrote the spin-off Knuckles the Echidna comic. This idea came from a situation Archie was planning for a Knuckles miniseries, but Sega themselves could not commit to an idea. It was actually intended for a Knuckles miniseries to be the first miniseries the Sonic book got, but because Sega couldn't come up with ideas, Sally got the first miniseries. Now, because Archie's editorial staff was unable to come up with ideas for a Knuckles miniseries, current editor Scott Fulop asked Ken to come up with ideas. Penders would later state, quote, I wanted to set up a scenario where we get to explore the character and his environment and his story. How did this character come to be? Okay, to be the last of his kind. And in setting up the elements to explain how he was supposedly the last of his kind, turned out he really wasn't. And Sega pretty much let me run with it, you know, as they saw stories starting to progress and develop. By revealing a lost Echidna society that Knuckles would never fully integrate into, effectively making him an isolated outsider among his own people, Penders indicated he felt that a core character trait had been adapted in a way more suitable way for the world established in Saturday AM in the Archie comics. In response to the criticisms that he had changed too much, Penders stated... <clears throat> to say I failed ignores the facts of other licensed properties, such as the Nintendo titles in comic book series crashing and burning early in their runs because they were too faithful to the source material, which did not allow for serial narratives in their setup. End quote. Now, minor bit of commentary. I will agree with this statement to an extent, and that is all I'm going to say about it. From this point forward... He and fellow writer Carl Bowlers, who we've already previously talked about in the previous episode where we discussed Ken's legacy on the comic and the impact he had on other creators, both enjoyed more creative freedom for Sega. They had become so accustomed to Sega approving their story proposals that they just began writing scripts before even sending them to Sega for approval. Ironically enough, Ken would also say that his working on the Knuckles book was because Knuckles was more of a blank slate than Sonic. As a result, he had more creative freedom to create a supporting cast of allies and villains. Ken would also say he would avoid using other writers' creations in his writing for Sonic. But that came to some contention when the Knuckles book was cancelled and Knuckles stories would end up becoming B-stories in the main book. Pender said, The fact is I never relied on any other Archie Sonic writers' material for any of my stories. Not even when I was working with Mike Kinterovich, original writing partner. If you don't remember, we talked about it where Ken would start it off with uh, Kinterovich towards the beginning of the comic before he started to take over and as sort of the writing head for, for where he felt he wanted the comic to go. I would always come up with the basic plots and Mike would throw in bits to improve them. Then we would work on the dialogue. I didn't rely on Mike Gallagher's material to drive my stories, nor did I ever pay attention to anything Carl was doing beyond supplying him with bits of info whenever he was incorporating one of my character's into his story. I never used a Carl creator character until I used Mina in Sonic 150. 
do more to a conversation with Mike Pellerito, editor of Sonic at the time, would go on to become the president of Archie Comics Publications. He continued stating that he avoided using characters beyond the court characters established in the original games and animated Deke series in the early 90s, as well as the settings of Robotropolis and Notho Village and a character or two like Lupe and Amy Rose. And didn't hesitate to push for killing off Robotnik and fighting to keep him dead. No comment. No comment. He would later add, quote, I don't consider anything Carl or Ian or any other writer to do with the character Locke to be official. They didn't create him, and they didn't do the heavy lifting of establishing him as a pivotal character to the Knuckles saga. Which, uh, that is definitely a true statement, I suppose. I, I suppose, yes. Penders would characterize the conflict between himself and Bowlers as a, quote, Donnybrook, and refer to Carl's hissy fit in his attempt to undermine whatever I did in Mobius 25 years later. Wow, okay. Okay. And then would later state, Neither Ian nor Pellerito know what to do with the characters, which isn't surprising as I was the only one who really had any idea how everything fit in the total narrative I was constructing. No comment. He also said that he only used new characters from the games when he was ordered to do so, and did not use any other writer's creations, quote, except in rare times when circumstances demanded it, such as a transition from someone else's story to his own. Penders also engaged himself very highly with the community at the time, frequently answering questions on his message board, including requests for advice in putting together portfolios for seeking a career in comics. In 2001, Penders employed artist Don Best as an assistant, helping her secure employment at Archie. When Ben Hurst famously tried to pitch Sat AM Season 3 slash the Sat AM movie, and Penders got in touch with Ben to work together on the project, he said he felt the idea for a second to pay them to make the movie was unrealistic. <laughs> Penders would later be contacted by Larry Houston, an animated director-producer, about creating a Sonic movie. He had stated that he had made presentations to Sega with favorable responses and assembled a pitch, a rough draft of the plot, an outline budget, production art, financial backers, and had Houston lined up as producer-director. Houston and Penders were in development talks with Sega for four years, hoping to release a movie for Sonic's 20th anniversary, but the project never went into production. Ken would later learn that on Ben's feelings about Ken's involvement after Ben Hurst had passed away, indicating that he did not want to elaborate on his side of the events out of respect for the dead, saying, quote, Since the man is dead, nothing I say will sound anything but self-serving, so give it a rest. Uh, I feel like that speaks for itself. Yeah, just, you know... Again, let the words that we're saying, you know, kind of form your own opinion here. When we say no comment, we just simply do not wish to comment. So as far as Ken's Sonic movie project goes, he recalled in September 2003, Ken said, quote, My team met with two Sega of Japan executives along with Sega licensing manager Robert Leffler for a meeting over breakfast at the hotel restaurant where they were staying in Hollywood just off Sunset Boulevard at the time. He said that since a plot close to the American stories will be seen as a, quote, rival to Sonic X, the project was not expected to gain much traction until well after that was over. Leffler kept the project under consideration for four years, after which his departure from the company and untimely death brought the effort to a close. During this period, Ken Penders would continue to work on the Sonic book and was also hired to produce storyboards for a Britney Spears movie, in addition to doing storyboards for Alien Racers and King of the Hill. God dang it, Bobby. In January of 2006, editorial changes were made at Archie, following, you know, the release of, what was it, 158, 159? Somewhere around there, if time remembers me right. Editorial changes were made. Penders quit 
and removed from the Sonic book. He issued a really lengthy statement on his personal website, archived on uh, Sega's forums, titled, Times They Are Changing. Now, we would like to go over some highlights from this statement. He understood he did not have longevity working in the comic book industry due to the nature of the work. However, his work on Sonic made his situation an anomaly. Quote, I can't think of a single writer or artist at Marvel or DC who has been associated with a particular book or character on a regular basis the past 12 years. Critters I can recall associated with a book as long as I are Roy Thomas on Conan and Chris Claremont on X-Men. Even Stan Lee and Jack Kirby didn't collaborate on the Fantastic Four as long as I've been on Sonic. And they wrote and illustrated the first 102 issues without a break. There is no job security in comic books. When sales go down, an editor may be replaced, but more often than not, it's the writing and art teams that get replaced. Often as a way to advertise readers that changes are coming and they should not miss out. Didn't expect to stay on the book as long as he did, expecting only to write a few issues and then move on to work at something in Marvel or DC. Working on Sonic back then was an issue-by-issue proposition. Even the publishers had no idea how long the book would last, hedging their bets only by offering six-issue subscriptions instead of the standard 12 they offered on all their other titles. So, when Sat AM was cancelled, the history of other licensed titles in the comic book industry didn't bode well for Sonic. Ken would write an outline of stories designed to take this series to issue 50, the culmination of which was the final battle between Sonic and Dr. Robotnik. While I knew there were no guarantees we would even make it to the 50th issue, the only time Ken would have a sense of stability was probably the first 25 issues or so of Knuckles. But when artist Manny Galland moved on to Nickelodeon, things fell apart. And as you know, the series was rather abruptly canceled at issue 32. After that, the book was a roller coaster ride for Ken. In October of 2005, editor Pellerito told Ken the Mobius 25 years later two-parter would be the last writing he would be asked to make for Archie Sonic for the foreseeable future. He was offered to work on the book in an artistic capacity, and while he accepted them as first while working on an assignment, he found that they were more pressing family matters as well as other opportunities elsewhere that he, quote-unquote, couldn't afford to turn down any longer. So, the current Sonic Shadow storyline in issues 157 to 159 will be my last regular Sonic story in the series. The upcoming Mobius 25 Years Later two-parter is my son song for the book altogether. It's now up to new scribe Ian Flynn and others to carry the ball from here on out. And in one of the most uh, interesting quotes I've heard from this document, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You decide. And folks, we have a 40-something episode podcast for you to answer that question with. Absolutely. So, Ian Floyd takes over the story on 160, as we have discussed multiple times. Archie actually approved a short story from him that was going to be a story B, but was it pushed back with him being put as... The new head writer, he was also somebody who has indicated that he was a fan of Pender's work on the comp. Now, I don't know how much Ian has talked about this. Has he talked about it much at all outside of the statement? No, none that I could find. Anything more recent would be uh, a little hard to come by. Yes. So... Now we have to talk about um, what actually incited this whole lawsuit. Uh... Which is, of course, oh god, why do we have to talk about this fucking game? <laughs> yeah, so Sonic Chronicles The Dark Brotherhood was a DS game that was released in 2008. It's a really, 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 really bad RPG. How can I describe it? Uh, it is The gameplay of it is basically like, imagine if Paper Mario was bad. Which is a very surprising statement to say, yes. Horrible music, very rushed very unfinished well not unfinished per se but very 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 
very messy. It just, it wasn't good. No, but unfortunately, the one thing I will say is that the story of the game actually isn't that bad because it, uh, well, it basically is an Archie story. And the reason for that was because that the game was very clearly inspired by the Archie comics, namely the Pender's work on the book. So, some of the plot beats include discovering that Knuckles is not the last echidna, the legacy is a central part of the story, the character of Shade is pretty arguably inspired off of Julie Sue. Yeah, it's it's very, like, very, very, very hard not to look at it that way. But I think what makes it even more interesting is due to Archie Sonic being licensed off of Sega, it was generally believed that it was fair game to do this right? It, it makes sense. Oh, well, Sega has the license. They seem to not really care when it comes to Archie stuff. So the devs not only admitted they were aware of the comics, but according to a uh, fellow YouTuber, uh, Tanner of the North, uh, shout out to Tanner. Uh, I've, I've seen his content around for a very long time. Shared with the Tumblr blog, thanks Ken Penders, uh, great blog by the way, Bioware nearly had a hundred issues of Archie Sonic in their archives, most of which was Ken's run, all marked as researched and with property of bioware he has them due to a friend's parents working there and he has those sonic comics as they were clearing out the archives in the past in addition he said he would later work on them himself they also had a large set of sat am underground and sonic x dvds along with a big mural of green hill and a sonic theme meeting room that they were taking down in the year he worked there apparently starting to move past it all yikes well with that being said according to the public record Ken would claim that in 2008, he would contact Archie Comics asking to return any original artwork of his in their possession and copies of any contracts he signed, and he asserts, neither exist. As a result, in January 2009, without Archie's knowledge, Ken Penders would begin filing applications at the U.S. Copyright Office to claim ownership of various stories, characters, and art he had created for Archie, 2009 to 2010, he would file nearly 200 copyrights at significant processing costs to himself. Now, I have a note here. Don't take this with that much weight here. I do want to point something out, though, that copyright, as far as rights are concerned, doesn't really have that much weight to ownership. Really, what you want to look at is intellectual property. As a result, uh, I have here to say, to drive the point home, Chris Chan holds the copyrights for Sonichu. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. I'm don't worry about it. Just understand as not what you want to be looking at. <laughs> so in January in 2010, Ken would go on to post prepare yourselves. Ken would go on to post lengthy negative reviews of Ian Flynn's work on Archie Sonic following his departure. Quote Regarding everyone's comments here leaves me with the impression neither Mike Pellerito or Ian really know what to do with either the characters or the story beyond regurgitating what came before. From where I sit, all Mike and Ian are doing is living off the work done by others that came before them. I especially don't consider anything either does with any of the Echidna characters, especially Locke, to be canon as they've neither created the characters nor established them in the stories as the viable fan favorites they've become. I'd like to repeat that last line one more time. As the viable fan favorites they've become. Ken would go further and accuse Ian of stealing ideas of his based on what he submitted to Mike Pellerito, the new editor at Archie, when he submitted the script. 
for issue 157. The only real overlap that came across this was a story starring the King Sonic from the future and a story in which Bunny and Antoine got engaged after being a couple for over a decade. So for the sake of clarity, I also included the other concepts he talked about, which is Sonic setting Uncle Chuck and Rosie on a date, Mina and Amy going on a duo mission in Eggman's stronghold to prove themselves as freedom fighters, Sonic using the nanotech to de-roboticize his dad, which doesn't really work, but he just ends up looking like a normal Mobian, Snively would sacrifice himself, leading to his own death, Sonic feeling guilt over his death, and also would lead him to become a gentleman at arms for Sally, which basically just comes with them being engaged. They have a little conflict when Sally realizes that Sonic can overrule her in matters of her security, and they end up in a diplomatic engagement when they go to Station Square to set up Knothole's first foreign emissary. They encounter Anti-Sonic in Station Square and find Knuckles and the Chaotix looking to get revenge on Anti-Sonic, but because of the diplomatic situation, Sonic would be forced to fight Knuckles off. With that all being said, um, we have one final comment from Ken on the matter. Pender said, he wanted it to be known that his comments were not sour grapes, since um, the fact is I'm extremely happy where my life has led to these days. Not everyone gets the experience I do directing a film in Hollywood with real stars and trying to sell it to the studios and networks. My tenure on Sonic alone has given me serious street cred in this town and opened up some very unexpected doors. I have nothing to be resentful over and much to be grateful for. When asked about a possible return, he added, if I were to go back to working on something like Sonic, I'd pretty much pick up where I left off, ignoring everything that came after Cinch, which is pretty much what I was in the process of doing so after Carl left. Wow, okay. No, no, uh, no comment. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, let it speak for itself. I'm sorry, but I, oh my god. Uh, I'm sure you're very interested to know what... What did Ian think? What did Ian say? He responded to the accusations by responding with, quote, Mr. Penders is mistaken in his assumption that we use material he had prepared for his departure from the book. All stories and overall direction was of my own creation. Specifically, the marriage of Bunny and Antoine was the logical progression of their relationship and was meant as a strong positive high note to be juxtaposed with the tragedy of 175 and would later add... I know he had written the Mobius 25 Years Later story, which I was asked to rewrite in a pinch. Which I believe this may be the origin of Ken's, what I describe as a one-sided feud with Ian. The story took place in Sonic 166 and 167 and bore no similarity to the plot synopsis Penders had posted online. Penders would state that the story he had handed in had been heavily influenced by Mike Pellerito, stating this was the storyline that convinced me it was time for me to move on as Mike Pellerito kept on injecting his own ideas into the plotting, something that had not occurred with previous editors to the extent it did to the writing of this. He also indicated that Sega had been starting to take a more active role in the book's production, with greater desire to see characters from the games Although he did not elaborate on upon this. Um. Um. Uh. I, okay. I, I can. I do understand that you as a creator have a vision and you want to see it forward. I get it. But. Okay. No further comment. In April of 2010, the U.S. Copyright Office approved all of Penders' applications. For the record, the Copyright Office themselves don't investigate ownership contestations. After an open period to contest any claims, it's closed, and then applications are approved, and from that point on, any disputes would be settled in the courts. And then, 
On April 21st, 2010, the U.S. Copyright Office informed Penders that they sent notification to Archie and Sega informing them of his ongoing copyright process and giving them 30 days to challenge his claim of ownership. July 7th, the U.S. Copyright Office would recognize all of Ken's claims and he would then post the following message. I am now officially recognized by the U.S. government as the owner of every single Sonic and Knuckles story I ever created. Anyone seeking to use my characters, concepts, and stories must first contact me for permission. While it does not prevent Archie from publishing the Sonic series, they are not allowed to use any of my characters, concepts, or stories without further discussion with my representatives. For now, they cannot reprint any of my stories in any media whatsoever, nor can they use any of my characters. Every story since issue 160 that features my characters, concepts, is essentially unauthorized. I am currently at work creating a new story featuring my characters, the first of which is a tale of Laura Sue learning about her family, in particular, the early days of her grandparents, Knuckles' parents, leading up to the time of their birth as a child. Whether or not this new story or others will feature Sonic and Knuckles is a decision only Sega can make. Later, Ken would say that he sought legal counsel and had been told various things about his rights, particularly that he signed the rights to his works away, and it was untrue. As a result, Ken would then send cease and desist letters to those using his works without permission and indicated frustration that Archie was not paying contributors for reprints of their work. Quote, if Archie had been paying some form of royalties to all their creators prior to this, in all likelihood, this discussion would not be taking place at all. So, folks, I want to show you guys something. What I have in my hand is basically what Ken was describing. This is Sonic Archives. This is a reprint publication that Archie was doing when Ian first took over the comic to sort of catch new readers up on the lore. So, th this was essentially advertised as like a manga-style book that would collect a handful amounts of... You know, certain classic issues. So this one in particular that I have is Sonic Archives Volume 13, which is basically the end of the Endgame arc. After all of this, Penders would then legally accuse Archie of infringing on his copyrights. Notable example, Robo Robotnik, an alternate reality version of Robotnik who would become the book's central antagonist from issue 75 to present day, and, of course, Evil Sonic, a variant Sonic le later renamed to as Scourge. Penders explained, when Robo Robotnik becomes the new Eggman, it is a done-off panel. Neither is Evil Sonic's transformation into Scourge. My characters are literally shown being given makeovers and a name change. Thus, they have no degree of separation from being my characters. Ken would also say, in a paraphrase, Evil Sonic is a distinct character. As that personality-wise, Evil Sonic is distinct from Sega Sonic, and that he looks completely different as well. We have shown a comparison on screen. You be the judge. Another thing I would like to note is that Ken also tends to make instances of a comparison to Marvel Comics, making Bucky Barnes into the Winter Soldier. He compares this as a similar case of Evil Sonic being transformed into Scourge. However, from my perspective, Ken does not seem to really be understanding the substance of the changes of the characters, really only coming from the level of copyright ownership. What I'm trying to say is here, between Bucky Barnes to Winter Soldier and Evil Sonic to Scourge, the stories that are being told with those characters would not hit as hard, would not have the same level of impact if Winter Soldier was distinct from Bucky Barnes, as such Scourge is distinct from Anti-Sonic. So now, another thing that I want to say is that I did a little look into this because as it's very obvious 
Robo Robotnik and Antisonic are variant characters that are based off, you know, a pre-existing character that Ken did not create. So now my question was, wait, is this something that actually is like viable? Does this argument hold anything? And from what my research has shown, it actually kind of does. So this is a pretty uh, infamous story in the comic book field, the medieval spawn dispute. Long story short, Image Comics, we talked about them in the previous episode, how they make creator-owned comics. So Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman joined created a story which showed a character named Medieval Spawn, which is a variant of Spawn, of course. This dispute would last for over a decade. To work around any disputes, McFarlane made a different version named Dark Ages Spawn. And then when presented in court, the judge sided with Gaiman that for all intents and purposes... This is a renamed Medieval Spawn. And then eventually, the case was settled in favor of Gaiman to be a 50% owner of copyrights for Spawn issues 9 to 26, which settled the dispute. Archie Comics then filed a lawsuit against Ken Penders on November 23rd, 2010, alleging he had broken his contract with them. However, a bigger issue had arised. Archie could not produce the original contract Penders had signed with them when he began working with them. What that had presented was a photocopy of a contractual renewment agreement in 1996. However, there were four big issues with this renewal agreement. As photocopies, their legal validity could be disputed. Penders maintained that the documents were false, saying that a company that has been doing graphic designs for decades, they would know how to produce forgeries. Since Penders began in 1993, not 96, if the document was deemed valid, it may not have covered the first years of his works, which included the Dark Legion characters, the basis of which served as an inspiration for the Sonic Chronicles character. However, depending on the contract, if signed, it could retroactively put the copyright of previous creators' works with the company into Archie's hands. And finally... The paperwork presented seemed incomplete, several boxes not being filled in, and having no mention of Sega, Sonic the Hedgehog, Knuckles, etc. On December 31st, 2010, Sega would then allow their contract with Archie to expire for the first time since 1992 in order to renegotiate a contract which, according to Archie, was less friendly to them. Temporary agreement was reached to allow the book to continue printing as negotiations occurred. Then on May 31st, 2011, Penders would then file a civil suit against Sega and Electronic Arts, who owned Bioware, developed Sonic Chronicles, over copyright infringements with said game, that the characters on that game were based on his Dark Legion characters. <laughs> Due to Archie fumbling the bag, if the paperwork was done correctly, the copyrights of these created characters would default to Sega. But that didn't happen. Any creator could sue Sega, and they could potentially win. I kind of do want to have a little note here. Ken Penders, in your own works, in the book, there, there's a lot of things there that you inspired, let's say. The Chaos Force, for example. Clearly just the Force from Star Wars. And uh, the Sandworms as well, which are up from there. Ken, by your own definition... It seems you also engage in copyright infringement, in my opinion. But that's beside the point. Clearly just an opinion, nothing more. Ken, however, had Afidavit signed from other creatives during this case. Namely, Scott Shaw and Carl Bowlers, saying that it had not signed work for hire contracts with Archie either. In 2011, August 2011, depositions began. Penders' attorney contacted former Archie staff. 
and claims that he was told of a problem that occurred in 1996. Archie began storing contracts in boxes on their own Insight warehouse, and due to at least one incompetent employee, a number, uh, an unknown number of creator agreement documents were destroyed. Archie tried to downplay the situation by sending out revised contracts in hope that they had acted casual about the situation. It would appear that they're not being desperate in trying to regain the signature of their creatives. In particular, the signature of George Gladier, co-creator of Sabrina the Teenage Witch alongside Dan DiCarlo, which had, at this time, just began airing its now-beloved live-action sitcom during that year. Gladier ended up not signing the revised contract, and it's possible, and it's just my speculation, but it is possible that Kenders' contract was another that was destroyed, which may be the source of the 1996 photocopy, provided that this information was accurate. We now have come... We have all of the pretense for this. Now we begin the investigation and the allegations. We have obtained the court records of this lawsuit. And it does not appear to be everything. But the estimation is this is around 90% of the court documents and proceedings according to these documents. Quote, The court is aware Penders maintains the ACP Penders documents are forgeries or if actually signed, signed under false pretenses, and the documents are therefore not authentic and provide no authority. Penders has never articulated what these false pretenses are and have not provided in discovery any evidence what these false pretenses that leads to Penders signing these agreements. From the documents, I can at least say it does appear that Ken legitimately believed that this was not a work-for-hire arrangement in the beginning. It was stated... Ken was putting more passion into the book because he was not given a work-for-hire contract. He and Kentarovic were only commissioned to write stories for the book from the beginning. Now, from document number 13, from Penders' team, it details that Penders and Kentarovic had no written understanding between them and Archie considering their freelance work, but were supposedly in the process of doing so. Penders also asserts that the only document he signed in relation to his work at Archie were simple pay vouchers and checks he endorsed, and that these vouchers did not contain any legal language or reference to ownership or transfer of copyrights in the materials produced for the Sonic comics. Directly from the records... The most that Penders has been able to muster is that he does not recall signing the ACP Penders agreement. Without any evidence, Penders has claimed that these agreements somehow do not exist and that ACP has fabricated them. Yet, in his deposition, he admitted that he has no proof that ACP or anyone else forged his signatures on the documents. Per the public record, these are not my words, these are the words of Archie's counsel. Penders' argument is mere speculation and conjecture at best. And at worst, it is a perversion of our judicial system. The court should not condone Pender's arguments. And finally, enter summary. In the court proceedings, Archie Comics Publications also provided two work-for-hire agreements, which we've been referring to as the ACP Pender's Agreements. And these are integral to Pender's first amended counterclaim. Penders also did not supply a handwriting expert or any defense to his forgery claim, plus the court verified his signature comparing his agreement signature to his deposition signature. And then, the court also would obtain emails dated from 2008 stating, in fact, he did sign work-for-hire agreements with ACP. Two, one titled Revised Newsstand Comic Independent Contractors Agreement and another called ACP Licensed Comic Books Independent Contractors Agreement. 
All from Archie. Directly from document 48, quoted from Ken Pender's deposition. Now we're going to be doing a question answer format for this. So um, remember, I would like you to take notes of all the words being said within this. I will be providing the question. Speed will be providing the answer. You have no evidence that Archie forged your signature, do you? I have no evidence. That doesn't mean they're not capable. Do you have any evidence to support such a claim? I don't have any evidence that a business that's been in the graphic reproduction business for 70 years committed forgery, no. From the deposition of Kenneth W. Penders II, pages 188 to 189. In fact, the signed bankruptcy petition, which Penders admitted he signed in his deposition, clearly shows the same signatures that appears on the ACP Penders Agreement. I'll show you what's been marked as Penders Exhibit 3 and ask you to take a moment and flip through these records. My question will be, do you recognize these records? Now that they're in front of me, yes, I do. What do you recognize them to be? I recognize them to be documents that my lawyer gave me to read and sign. If I could draw your attention to the fourth page of the exhibit, there appear to be four signatures on the left side of the page. Do you see them? Yes. The two in the middle, are those your signatures? Yes. No comment. As a result, in Archie's own court documents, they would further accuse Ken of committing perjury. As follows, the U.S. Copyright Act requires a transfer of copyright ownership other than by operation of law is not valid unless an instrument of conveyance or a note or memorandum of the transfer is in writing and signed by the owner of the rights conveyed or such owner's duly authorized agent. During Penders' deposition, he admitted he did not obtain the requisite writing transfer agreements from Kentarovic prior to the filing of his copyright registrations. So you did not have a written agreement from him, Kintarevich, specifically transferring to you this particular work when you filed the application, right? At the time I filled the application, I may not have had a specific written agreement, correct? And that would be true for any of the registrations on which Mr. Kintarevich is listed as a co-author, wouldn't it? I would agree, yes. Despite the fact that Penders did not have a written agreement from Mr. Kintarevich, he explicitly stated on the registration application from which he signed under the penalty of prejury that he in fact obtained all of Mr. Kintarevich's interests by written agreement. This is a fraudulent statement. Penders committed prejury, while Penders acknowledges under oath that Mr. Kintarevich co-authored several of his works, he did not have a valid written transfer agreement, although he claimed that he did in order to obtain the registrations in his name. He obtained the registrations by fraud. And again, that is the words of Archie's counsel. Yes. Penders explicitly denied the existence of the contract, but these emails tell a much different story. Penders does not attach these emails to his pleading, and for good reason. So in these emails, Penders asked for the ACP agreements in 2008 from Scott Fulop, signed while working under Scott Shaw. It makes it known that Penders' own statement is contradictory. Penders had asked for a copy of the agreement he acknowledges having signed under Scott Fulop. Explicitly, Penders asked for a copy of the work-for-hire agreement he signed under Scott. When questioned, Ken admitted that he signed a work-for-hire contract and had no objections when signing. And as a result, the court would then accept the copies of the work-for-hire documents as legally acceptable, stating Ken Penders failed to produce genuine dispute regarding the authenticity of such documents. They even said there is no basis for the demand that Archie must produce the wet signature originals. Wow. That's, uh... That is something that came out very recently. 
Uh, we did not know this until very recently, but that is that is that is new information. From document 56, Penders admitted in deposition that he would regularly sign blank invoices to give to editors for them to fill out when they purchased a story from him. Okay. Now when you were doing work for Archie, I understand you had signed groups of invoices in blank and given them to the editor at the time in order for them to fill out the details when they purchased a story from you. Is that correct? To the best of my recollection, yes. At any point in time, did you object to that procedure? The way it was explained to me, I didn't see any reason to object. In addition, upon interviewing other Archie staff, Archie's lawyers would deem that the ACP Penders Agreement is valid. In reinforcement, another quote from his deposition, In your email to Victor Gorlick from December of 2008, you state that you are requesting a copy of the Work for Hire Agreement I signed. I inartfully worded those emails. I did not wish to engage the time, expense, or effort on a fool's errand. I felt it would be productive if I had pointed Archie in a direction where such documents, if they did exist, were to be found. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. So, directly from the same document, it is nonsensical for Penders to argue that he did not sign the agreements when he specifically requested a copy of the agreements he signed from Victor Gorlick. This is yet another inconsistent statement from the defendant. Continuing, and again, I must repeat, these are the words of Archie's lawyers. There is ample evidence that Penders signed the agreements. The signature on the agreement is in fact his signature. Penders' discovery responses and deposition testimony show that Penders cannot support his claim that the agreements showing his signature are not Genuine. It is incumbent upon a party claiming the non-genuineness of a signature to provide first-hand proof of the forgery. I also would like to point out document 58. It is the largest of the batch at 73 pages, 10 pages of which is Penders himself detailing which of the copyright registrations go to which stories, which is a point of contention earlier in the proceedings. The weird thing is, though, is that the majority of the document is Penders submitting proof for each individual copyright that Kenterovic co-wrote with him. And the weird thing was that the same copy of the document was submitted multiple times to and relating to several different exhibits. Exhibit evidence B to AA, it's all the exact same documents citing individual copyright. I just wanted to point that out because I thought that's a little weird that that happened. I don't know if that's standard case for legal proceedings like this. It just kind of stood out to me. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty wild. In the words of Judge Richard M. Berman, document 103. Defendant also argues that the ACP Penders Agreement did not exist prior to July 2010. This is completely false. These documents were signed and executed by Penders more than 15 years ago. Contrary to defendant's claims, ACP never informed Penders that no agreements or contracts between Archie's and Mr. Penders existed, and there is no evidence to the contrary. In fact, Penders' emails to ACP Gorlick in 2008 admit and request copies of the agreements I, Penders, signed with ACP. ACP undertook a diligent search for the agreements which Penders requested copies of the agreements he signed. There is ample evidence that the ACP Penders Agreement produced to Penders are true and accurate copies of the documents that Penders executed and signed to ACP in 1996. The copies that ACP has deprived to the defendant that were found in the files that the original agreements would have been maintained and are evidence of the contents of the original documents and are admissible under the federal rules of evidence in lieu of the lost originals. ACP 
undertook a diligent search of its regularly kept business and record files, and the copies of the ACP Penders Agreement were located and produced to the defendant. ACP and Penders entered into a valid binding contract where Penders agreed to assign and did assign all right and interest in each work to ACP. Penders is not the legal or rightful owner of the copyright to these works. Second, Penders registrations are not prima facie proof of validity of the copyright under the 17th USC and 410 because they were not filed within five years of the date of the first publication of the work. The presumption of validity of the Copyright Office registration only applies when the registration was made before or within five years after the first publication of the work. All of Pender's copyright registrations were filed more than five years after the first publication of the work and therefore are not entitled to a presumption of validity. Similarly, none of the asserted regulations, including a statement that the subject work was made for hire, are requested by 17 USC and 409 uh, parentheses 4. Therefore, Penders cannot use the registrations to prove the first element of copyright infringement. Furthermore, from document 120, Archie's legal team provided text from the work for hire document saying that these licensed comments are work for hire and that compensation will be mutually agreed upon. And... The contractor will not be entitled to royalties, income derived from licensing or merchandising, or additional compensation for the creation of new properties. Reprint fees will be paid at Archie's sole discretion. Ken would later ask Victor Gorlick about payment over reprinted materials when Archie began reprints in 1997. Gorlick said ACP will not pay Penders any additional fee for any reprinted material because he was not entitled to reprint fees under agreement with ACP. Throughout the remainder of Penders' time with Archie, he did not ask about reprint compensation any further. To comment, I honestly do think they fucked Ken here. The contract that he signed does state that it is Archie's discretion, so I do think there was room to talk about it, but to shut him down, I think was unfair. Yeah... <sighs> I can't... I'm biting my tongue. That's my comment then. Now, on page 17 of 120... Edward G. Spallone, the VP of Finance for ACP, recalls, 15 years prior, not only writing Penders' name in the opening paragraph of each agreement, then signing and dating the agreements on behalf of ACP, but also submitting the documents to their business office. Penders would receive in the mail two copies of the agreements, one to counter-execute and another to keep for his records. Victor Gorlick, who is then editor-in-chief of ACP, recalls receiving via the mail the ACP Penders agreements and would then photocopy the document and circulate it to relevant offices such as accounting. This was standard practice at ACP for their independent contractors. And in the end, according to document 147, the court would accept the copies as valid evidence. Okay, all this in mind. Now, again, this is a lot of information. We know it's a lot. I am having trouble processing all of it so please if you need to go rewatch and kind of gather what we've just talked about go ahead and do so so october of 2011 archie completes negotiations with sega details of the new contract were not known to the general public but the most important part of this contract was that archie lost the exclusivity agreement with sega to create sonic comics important point because Sega owns all the rights to the Archie Sonic book, 
and an exclusive publishing agreement with Archie before 2011, Sega could not only allow other companies to print Sonic comic books, but could also allow other publishers to reprint the Archie-made Sonic books. In addition, Archie lost the right of first refusal to publish Sonic spinoffs before the offer was made to other companies. Archie would argue in court documents that it was a direct result of the situation Ken Penders created with his copywriting and would seek $250,000 in damages due to the relationship between Archie and Sega being hurt. In theory, this means that IDW in some form could reprint all of the comics from the date of this new agreement. On October 24th, 2011, Penders would get new counsel, and the trial was set to begin on October 31st of that year, but was then postponed till January 21st, 2012, and would later end up being postponed indefinitely. However, on September 26th, Penders' lawsuit against Sega and Electronic Arts was dismissed, with the judge essentially telling Penders, you need to settle matters with Archie first, and could then refile. Penders would then proceed to refile four days later on September 30th. The case was brought to the same judge, and the same judge dismissed the case a second time, saying very firmly, Penders needs to settle matters with Archie before refiling against Sega and Electronic Arts. Uh, that should speak for itself, I <sighs> yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. On December 2nd, 2011, a day that, well, it's certainly a day. Ken Penders announces, I've decided now is the time to finally launch the continuing saga of the Brotherhood of the Guardians and the Dark Legion in graphic novel format. This planned graphic novel using his characters would become known as the Julie Suit Chronicles. He would later clarify, the story does indeed pick up where Mobius 25 years later left off at the end as seen in Sonic the Hedgehog 144. And that it would feature the majority of characters I've created during my run on the Sonic titles. This book has not released yet. During 2012, Sega would begin filing with the U.S. Copyright Office to establish their claims to ownership to a large number of Archie Sonic comics, clearly suggesting they were paying attention to the goings-on of Penders and Archie. And then in January 6, 2012, Archie would file for summary judgment against Penders, suggesting that their arguments were so airtight they would not need to proceed to jury trial. The judge denied this request. Penders then asked for the case to be thrown out of court. This was also rejected. And then in May of 2012, Penders' counsel appeals the dismissal of the Penders case to Sega EA. Penders would need to have a case in motion against these parties over the copyright dispute instead of refiling due to there being a three-year statute of limitations against copyright claims. Chronicles was released September 25, 2008. So at this time, the expiration date had already passed. Filing a new case would mean immediate dismissal, leading to Penders having to appeal. The importance of these dates was not stated in the appeal, which could have supported his argument if they were. During this time, Ian Flynn would continue to use Penders' created characters for the stories, saying he was assured to do so by his superiors at Archie. Penders responded for saying, quote, for Ian to announce he's going to feature the anti-Brotherhood shows he doesn't respect creators' rights either, end quote. Penders continued to maintain ownership of Robo-Robotnik, who was used simply as Eggman in the book at the time, and Anti-Sonic, also known as Scourge. He would later state, quote, Evil Sonic is mine simply because, despite the apparent source material, he's a totally different character. 
For starters, he doesn't look or behave or look like Sonic. I introduced the concept of the multiverse to Sonic series as it exists. While the games has zones or levels, they do not have alternate timelines, nor do they feature doppelgangers of any of the new created characters. And argued, any and all characters from alternate timelines belong to him. We'll be right back. And now we're back. So in mid-August of 2012, Archie fires their original legal team and would bring in new attorneys. October 16th, 2012, Archie reveals at New York Comic Con a redesign of Sally Acorn that was closer to the style of the internal art at Sonic Team. Ben Bates would confirm that he was asked to make a redesign of Sally around early 2011, indicating that this redesign may have been in response to the allegation Penders was bringing forward and would lead to all of the Freedom Fighters being redesigned. Now, I remember when this announcement was actually made. I do have a very, very, very specific memory of when this announcement was made, but I didn't have any of the legal background. So I was a little confused, but I was surprised. Seemed like a solid redesign for what it was. Yeah, they look like they fit the Sonic world, and that was the point. Yep. Now, Ian Flynn would later state that the Freedom Fighters had to be redesigned if they were going to survive the situation, and that he was the one who suggested the redesign as a way to keep them in the book as changes underwent. As far as criticism of the redesign goes, he added, To draw a parallel, we're driving in a car and we're about to hit a tree, killing everyone with us. I suggest we change course to avoid the tree. So yeah, it's my fault everyone survived for a future drive, and thankfully, the driver listened and took us in a nice direction. I'm sorry you don't like the new scenery my suggestion brought. <laughs> Holy Jesus shit, dude. Jesus fuck. Holy shit, that, dude. That, that man looked, looked you dead in the eye and said, listen, it's either this or nothing. <laughs> now, in November of 2012, Ken Penders would send a cease and desist order to Diamond Comic Distributors asking to halt shipments of Knuckles Archives number 3. Sonic 244 which was the last uh, episode we recorded for the record, would be released that same month and utilize Pender's created characters heavily, such as Leon Daw, the Dark Legion, Saffron B, and Julie Sue. And as we read, all of the Pender's created characters were warped into another reality. Sonic Universe 46 would also release later that month and was heavily edited to remove appearances of Pender's created characters and replaced with stand-ins. Pender's characters would not appear in future issues since then. On November 29th of 2012, Archie agreed to terms for settlement by Penders, which all terms are not known of. However, it is a matter of public record that Archie's legal staff do not consider Penders as fully owning his character. They essentially agreed to a non-aggression pact, where if Ken would use his created characters in his own works, Archie would not pursue legal claims against him. Penders and Archie representatives would sign a term sheet of agreement. Now, this is speculation slash hearsay, so please note this. Allegedly, during this, Ken would ask for Sega's permission to use Knuckles in the Laura Sue Chronicles. 
you can come up with your own conclusion to what was said in regards to that. In March of 2013, Penders requested the case to be thrown out as settlement had been reached. And the judge previously indicated that if the two parties could not settle by January 21st, the case would be dismissed. However, Archie indicated that the settlement had not been finalized as Archie needed assurances that Ken's works would not have the look and feel of being part of a Sonic the Hedgehog universe to them. Additionally, Ken still had to clearly define the boundaries of what he is claiming ownership of. This is cross-referenced with document 164. You can see them very clearly if you look there. April 2013, Pender's legal counsels sought to stop the sale of Knuckles Archives number 4, which contained disputed material. Document 165. So another one of the contentions was that the author of the archives books was listed as Sonic Scribes. Per the listing of Knuckles Archives 4, the Sonic Scribes are the many talented writers and artists who have helped create the Archie comics popular and record-setting Sonic the Hedgehog comic books and graphic novels for two decades. They include such recent greats such as writer Ian Flynn and artist Ben Bates and Tracy Yardley, veterans such as Patrick Spaz Spazatine and Stephen Butler, early greats such as Mike Gallagher, David Manack, James Fry, and Art Mawinney, and many more. I think that's fair, personally. Yeah, it's it's a it, it you know it, it, we we can provide comment on this because we do think it's it's this is actually a fair fair issue you know if you're if you're going to reprint the comic you got to include the guy who who helped make them re regardless of what you think of them yes and also Ken would say in this document that he takes issue that he is the sole creator of the comics per this document. This is my research. Uh, in, re in regards to Knuckles Archives number four, he's not. Ken wrote the script only for these issues. Manny Galan did the pencils among many others who also contributed. Just letting that state for the record. Yes. April also saw the start of, of course, Worlds Collide. The crossover between Archie Sonic and Archie Mega Man. Next episode. Uh, since the crossover took place in an alternate reality and a reality rewriting machine, the Genesis Wave, Ian Flynn considered the crossover as good timing as it gave the creative team to figure out what they were going to do with the necessary changes needing to take place. On May 2nd, 2013, Archie's new counsel met with the judge, beginning the hearing with, So this looks like a fine mess. And folks, this is going to bring in the dumbest revelation to the cast thus far all right so uh how do you want to do this you want to you want to be uh archie's lawyer i'll be i'll be archie's lawyer i'll be i'll be archie fuck it <laughs> <laughs> i'll be i'll be i'll be archie in riverdale it's me oh, archie no. riverdale yeah it's me archie's lawyer joshua paul we took this case over right before the mediation and it has become clear to us that the focus of the case as is reflected in the proposed jury instruction and the joint pre-trial order significantly misses a very critical legal issue. And I'm only asking for the opportunity to write to you. I'd like to explain to you what that is because we're dealing with congressionally created copyrights. So what's been missed, your honor, is this. The question is, this is a derivative work. The underlying rights here don't come from Archie. They come from a contract between Sega of America, which owns the copyrights, which then granted them to Archie the rights to use the copyrights for a particular purpose. Archie, in turn, hired Mr. Penners. The cases have said that in this circumstance, the ownership of the derivative work is governed 
by the intention of the licensor and the licensee in that grant. And it's that I'd like to be able to write, at least explain that authority. So are you saying the prior council blew it? Absolutely, your honor. So I will say that this, the issue will need to be addressed in one form or another, and we're hoping, we're hoping that you'll allow us an opportunity to explain the issue and to explain our proposal, our proposal for dealing with it in a way that will not further inconvenience and drain resources, but will still allow this court to apply the correct law. I can't be as... Well, give it to the jury. That's the way we're going to deal with it. We're not going to have more motion practice. My God, this thing has been litigated up, down. If it's a valid issue, you and counsel will discuss it, meet and confer. If you need to revise the joint pretrial order and the jury instructions, you'll do that and the jury will decide it. For the record, I'll also link this transcript in full in the sources in the description. Honestly, please read it yourself. This judge is hilarious. It really feels like he's just caught in a Seinfeld episode between Archie's and Ken's lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's it's some it's some big Seinfeld energy. Uh Larry, Larry David, call us. We'll uh, we'll hook you up. You'll 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 reenact it for us. It'll be great. So to boil it down though, Archie and Ken wanted to settle. But because Sega is involved as the licensor, Sega kind of needed to be present for them to fully settle. But Sega didn't want anything to do with this case. <laughs> they were fucking over it. They expected Archie not only to re represent Sega effectively, but win the case and pay Sega's future legal fees in any case involving Penders. As a result, Archie felt that in order to meet Sega's demands, Sega's legal counsel will have to be present for the settlement, but Sega refused. Any and all contact, including this case, even explicitly asking Archie not to contact them. The judgment that encouraged mediation to arrive at a settlement. They had the lawsuit. They had it won. Sega just had to show up and say, yeah, but they didn't. <laughs> oh my God. It took them this long to realize, hey, wait a minute. This isn't our work. We need Sega to be involved here. And Sega was just like, no. What the? F they could have. We're going to touch on that a little more in the future, but. To continue onward, so on July 1st, 2013, counsels for Penders and Archie indicated to the judge that they have reached settlement, signed the formal agreement, and the judge would then sign an order dismissing the case. Penders would then announce he is continuing work on the Laura Sue Chronicles. Details of such settlement have been sealed under confidentiality clause. However, and I must insist this is speculation again, the initial agreement of Archie not acknowledging Penders' ownership of his created characters still remained in effect and Archie would not pursue litigation if Ken adhered to only using certain characters. July 22nd, 2013, Penders attends San Diego Comic-Con to introduce his panel for his friend Elliot S. Maggot, who had previously worked with him at Archie, and he would also submit an affidavit that Archie did not supply with him a work-for-hire contract. And he would also then attend a panel of current Archie staff, went without incident, but Ken was caught there by the thesonicstadium.org, and they did a quick interview with him, and it led to this exchange. I'll be uh, TSSZ, you can be Penders. Of course. There are some fans who are very upset that some of their favorite characters may not be returned to the comics. What would you say to them to make them feel more at ease? Well, I really can't talk about the settlement per se, but what I can say is that Archie has the ability to go forward with these characters if they so choose. That's their option. And that's all I'm going to say on that. I have the right to move forward myself, my copyrights, my characters... And that's what I'm doing. Ken would afterward request if any fans wish to use his characters and fan works, must write for him for permission first and include 
copyright and trademark Ken Penders. Uh, all I can really say is that it does appear that Archie does have the ability to use Penders' characters if they so chose to. Speaking of that, let's talk about some of those constituations with copyrights and trademarks from Ken Penders. In response to fans attempting to fundraise money to license Penders' characters for use in the Archie comics on August 27, 2013... He responded that licensing will come with stipulations, including but not limited to. The deaths of any characters have to be approved by him first. But aside from that, total and complete freedom with his characters, except for Julie Sue, Laura Sue, and Locke. Nothing in the stories using them can contradict what he is preparing in the future stories himself. Plus, any story involving Laura Sue had to be approved by him first, adding later that none of the other characters had this requirement. Penders would later clarify that he does not have a strong desire for his characters to be an Archie Sonic, saying on September 3rd, Frankly, at this point, I really don't care if my characters are ever seen in any upcoming story in the Sonic series. He also clarified that this was his caveat for all licensors, not just Archie, and quote, Neither confirmation or denial of any points of agreement I may or may not have with Archie. <clears throat> uh, Penders would never specify if the settlement allowed Archie to use his own characters freely or Archie had to pay him a licensing fee. When asked if this was the case, he again could neither confirm nor deny anything. Quote, when people have asked whether or not Archie can use my characters, the correct answer, without divulging into any of the terms we agree to, is that they can. Whether they choose to or not is a business decision only they can make. Now, this is speculation, but with this information here is that I personally think that due to Sega being involved with the comics as they were, they potentially could have just intended to fully deny any Penders characters in the comics moving forward. In addition, Penders was trying to appeal his case with Sega and EA, so Sega being forced to acknowledge Penders' ownership via the comic removal process could have caused conflict, and they wanted to avoid that. But again, that's my speculation. August 2013. Sonic the Hedgehog 251. The final issue of Worlds Collide was released and ends with what we are unfortunately going to have to spoil. A reality warping rewrite to entirely rewrite the canon of Archie Sonic. Like we said, 247 issues, the Knuckles miniseries and comics, Sonic Super Specials, and all related media have just been wiped away. On October 11th, 2013, the appeal to Ken's lawsuit with Sega and EA was heard. The judges agree that the timeline is relevant and if dismissed, would affect Ken's ability to seek damages for Sonic Chronicles. Ken's previous lawyer failed to state that the dates were important and thus the judges could not take that issue into consideration. The court would reject his appeal and upheld the dismissal. Ken could refile, but now the release window to the current date would stand out from the statute of limitations. However, if any characters that appeared in that game were ever reused, such as in the comics or in future games, Ken would then have grounds to seek damages. And he would later go on to say, This case may end up in the U.S. Supreme Court if a resolution isn't found prior to that. So on October 26, 2013, Ian appeared at a charity fundraiser for the Sick Kids Foundation, doing an impromptu Q&A, but stipulated he would only answer questions about characters from the games Sad AM or any character he himself created. All their characters are in question, and as of November 2013, the only characters to appear in Archie Cynic would be game characters. Those from Sad AM and Ian created characters with the exception of Reaper. 
Patriots. December 2nd, 2013. Jonathan Gray, our guy, now art director for the Sonic book, responded to a fan asking why the Freedom Fighters are still in the book after so much non-game material had been exiled. He responded by stating that the staff contributing to the book strongly felt that the Freedom Fighters recorded the book since the start, adding above all else that the book didn't have to use just the Sega characters per se, but they fought to keep them above all else. And really, that's what they felt was most important. Because let's be honest, guys, the Freedom Fighters, the Sad AM characters are pretty core to the world. If they were removed, that would make Archie Sonic feel just a little empty, wouldn't it? Two more notes before we finally finish this section. In addition, Carl Bowlers would later tweet that he has no idea whether or not his characters were removed in Archie Sonic. And if Archie did need permission to use his characters in future stories, he was never contacted about that. A little fun fact. When outsiders, i.e. not in the Sonic continuity, are told about the Ken Pender situation, the general consensus is, well, dude's a little off. But honestly, Archie kind of had this coming with how they treated Dan DiCarlo. Okay, we have finally reached the end of the section. Holy fuck, that was a lot. Yep. But there are some important takeaways we need to talk about. First of all, this does not change the outcome of the case. It's over and done with and has been done for a long time. It was a difficult process and it ended with a settlement. That's it. However, with the added context of the court documents that we have, Ken has not and is currently not being honest with the situation here. Ken Penders would regularly tweet about the documents and about the court proceedings in general. And he, his narrative is that he still continues to insist Archie never has and never would have provided him with a work-for-hire document. And as we can see from these court cases, from these court documents, that is just simply not the case. The documents are right here. And however, folks, um, I myself will not be revealing these documents, mainly because as I was reading them, there are a lot of personal information in these documents that I myself do not feel comfortable releasing. So we will let AWF, whenever he and his colleague are ready to release them, they will be released on their grounds. And you can look at the documents with them. When the documents go live, we will be releasing a link in the video description. Uh, if they are not there, then they have not been released yet. Um, we will have his Twitter in the video description. You can go take a look there for some of the early initial documents that prove our claims made in here. Um, some of the core claims that have been made are, uh, you know, especially the claim about um, Ken not being honest about the situation. Very, very, very imperative that, that you go and double check that because, again, we are using specific language as to not get sued. The crux of all of this, if you really want to take a look at it from every angle... Sega didn't want to be involved. It's so fucking obvious that they had the case, that they could have had the victory, and that this all could have never happened. We could have moved on, and there would have been nothing left. But if Sega did get involved, the team could have shut it all down. I understand why they didn't want to be a part of this. Makes sense. But if Sega just put a little effort in, they could have shown that the comic book is inherently derivative because it's a licensed work. Yeah... Uh, it's also important to note that during this time, Sega was not too hot in a financial situation either, so they probably couldn't even afford this lawsuit, so that's probably why they wanted to keep their distance. But at the same time, if they had just put in the effort and 
done the dirty work, this could have been avoided. And we did touch upon this. Ken Penders kind of did admit it himself per his uh, quotations we have. But I do want to have the final takeaway. If Ken was paid the fee for the reprints, not even proper royalties. If Ken got a little check from all these books from Sonic Archives, I don't think he would have cared. I don't think he would have done all this. Yep, absolutely. If he if he was just paid, it would have been fine. The checks would have just kept coming in on a regular basis, and Ken, I think, would cash them in with a smile on his face. Yep. And that's the end of Act 1. The Archie Sonic Digest will be right back after this break. And we're back from a short break. Welcome to Act 2, where we talk about Ian Flynn, unused concepts, and sort of go over what now. I'd like to start off by saying something that wasn't listed in our notes, but with the end of this lawsuit and the beginning of the new canon, I would like to announce that we are no longer talking about it. We have kind of beat the horse into the ground, and if you've been watching the more recent episodes, we call to it occasionally, but it's over. Penders' influence on this comic unfortunately only runs so far as to the destruction of the several characters that he took with him. The old canon, which we will talk about momentarily, had a lot to it, but ultimately, the man speaks for himself. I think everyone knows how we feel about him, especially with the new information coming to light. It is basically proven a lot of very substantial facts about Ken's ownership over these characters. Um, so from this point forward, after this episode, we are no longer going to be talking about Ken Benders on the show. Yes, and it is for the best. And I also want this to kind of be a takeaway for the rest of the Sonic community. There's nothing to gain from engaging with Ken Penders. There really isn't. All that he really has is his Twitter account, talks about what he wants to talk about, stirs stuff up every now and again, and that's it. I think it's for the best for us to just move on in general. Nothing's to be gained. Let's just keep it moving forward. Let's do our best to just keep things moving forward. So... Let's first talk a little bit about Ian. We've talked about it several times, but he turned the comic from a joke into something enjoyable and palatable. We've said it a million times. He was a longtime fan, turned into the producer on the series he loved growing up, spent about the first year doing Janny duty, cleaning up the mess the series was in, in terms of narrative, characterization, fixing everything, and by issue 180, the comic was cemented into his work with the beginning of the Enerjack arc. The legacy of the comic's past was still here. It was honored and put together in a way that showed the potential of the Archie Sonic book. His MO was clearly upping the stakes more and more and more. Every time another milestone issue came about, it was used to introduce the tone of the comic moving forward. 175 featured the brutal and extremely graphic raising of Knothole, leading to the rebuilding of the kingdom, transforming it into the Republic of Acorn. Issue 200, the final defeat of Eggman, leading into the unique and different Iron Dominion saga, which pulled the character out of obscurity and made her a relatively interesting threat with unique powers. Issue 225 was the first Genesis wave, done for the anniversary, but also to introduce the element of killing off, bringing back, and then roboticizing Sally, creating the ultimate threat, and create a tone of all gears forward to try to solve the problem. In between that, we do have to kind of talk about one of the arcs, which is, of course, the pseudo-scrapped arc where Sonic and Tails had that fight. Y you, rem you remember that oh, fight? Oh, I remember that it fight. 
Yeah. So the arc of Sonic trying to keep the acorns as the monarchs, it kind of seems ironic from the standpoint of a freedom fighter because, you know, they're supposed to be overthrowing oppressive powers and systems like Max had become. In the case of the Prowers trying to overthrow Elias, that criticism is a little bit more fair because Elias was trying to find sort of a middle ground, but also he was enacting the will of his dad because he didn't want to make poor dear dad misogynist Max sad and depressed. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, but it's more of a conflict of interest from Sonic's perspective. His girlfriend is the princess, like, come on. Yeah, he, he, does, he doesn't want to piss her off. Right. In the case of Nagus being the monarch, that that's that's just a surface level criticism. A despot has taken over the kingdom in the form of Nagus. The only difference was when Robotnik did it. Nagus was just being nice about the situation. Now, we will reiterate. Due to the lawsuit, several characters were removed. Archie could have used his characters. They removed them from the canon, along with all other characters and concepts made before Ian Flynn began writing on the book. For good. 245 fucking characters and concepts. Now, in this brief segment, we'd like to mention several characters that have unfortunately kicked the bucket. So, in memoriam, Elias Acorn, king and uh, former prince of the Acorn family. All of the parent characters of the main game's cast, including the Prowers, Sonic's parents, Knuckles' family, Smile. Thank you. And every signal fucking echidna, including Linda. Fuck you, Linda. Jeffrey St. John. Gone. Dr. Finitivus. Gone. And what I feel is the biggest loss as the result of all of this, Scourge. I do have some notes. However, I also do want to clarify that Dr. Finitivus was a Carl Bowler's character, not a Ken Penders. However, I did feel the need to include him just because to bring up the fact that now that there's like this weird gray area with all characters that came before Ian came in, but were not created by Ken. So I suspect Archie and Sega did not want to have a repeat of the situation. So they just played it safe and removed all characters that were not made by Ian himself. Yes. Because they did not want to have a repeat, and they wanted to make sure they covered all their bases. Again, this is the reason that we are getting a rebooted canon. I have some notes on some certain characters here. So, on Scourge in particular, I, from the beginning, felt like this was a character with so much potential. However, it was not ever finalized during the Pender's years. In particular, I want to know everything Ian had planned for Moebius and all the characters that surrounded that world. When we covered the Moebius 30 Years Later Sonic Universe arc, there was mention of an Anarchy Barrel bomb, which, for if you don't remember, Anarchy Barrel is the anti-Mobius equivalent of the Chaos Emeralds. We talked about that episode may have been a tease to future plans of those characters. A potential round three where it could turn into an all-out war between Mobius Prime and Moebius. And if you remember, or not that recent ago, when Scourge was left off during a Sonic Universe art was, I suspect, it was meant to start setting that up. We'll talk about this more in a second, but Finitivus was also meant to be a key player in Archie Sonic moving forward. So I suspect maybe he could have wanted to study Anarchy Energy, try to use it in tandem with Chaos Energy, and so forth. Makes sense, considering the, the subject matter, yeah. 
I also do want to comment. I feel a little adverse about advertising like fan comics due to the unofficial nature, but I still want to do shout someone out. There's a fan comic called Scourge Eternal Blackout. Takes place after the end of that universe arc, and he meets Anti-Shadow and Anti-Silver. To tie it back in, in Silver's first appearance in Archie Sonic, Silver suggested he was familiar with Moebius, so maybe Anti-Silver could have been involved in that Moebius Round 3 story arc. I don't know, that's just me purely being speculative, but that just drives the point home. I want to know what Ian had planned for these characters, because this just fascinates me to no end. Absolutely. So, I feel like the next character we should talk about is, of course, the character that kind of came in and stole our hearts, um, Shard. Shard didn't really get a lot of screen time in this comic, but he was really a standout character. He had a sense of longing and wanting to be part of something, and... We even saw him developing a little mutual crush with Nicole. That final appearance, you know, with him being uh, kind of fucked up, it, it feels like a shot in the gut. We kind of got robbed of something special with him, and I think that's really unfortunate. Yeah, he was a breakout character. I Unfortunately, this is one of those characters that are going to be relegated away. This is a little interesting. The, the situation with Shard, legally speaking, is very interesting because he is a Metal Sonic, a Sega creation. However, a lot of the characterization, even though Ian took it and ran with it, did kind of come from the Bowlers era. So I think this is another one of those situations where Archie wanted to play it safe and just said, don't touch this character again, which sucks. So let's talk about somebody we like a lot less. St. John. I do legitimately applaud Ian in taking a shot at Jeffrey's character. He basically did add a lot of complexity that was really lacking before Ian came onto the book. The retcon where he made Jeffrey St. John an apprentice to Nagus and working alongside him to put him on the throne all this time kind of is clever looking back on it. However, if it was up to me, if I was the one writing the story, obviously the Freedom Fighters would have defeated Nagus, restore the acorns to the throne, all is well. However, I do think it would have been crucial. Include an epilogue where Jeffrey approaches the Freedom Fighters in a hood, he's disguising himself, whatever, basically saying, hey, look, I really fucked up, and there's nothing I can do to make up for my actions, and then as a result, exile himself from New Metropolis, and then we never see Jeffrey again in the comic afterwards. Yeah, I feel like that would have been a good fate for that fucking character, please, God. Okay, so now we're going to talk a little bit about something else. So, there is a complete encyclopedia, which was a 200-page book detailing the pre-reboot world of Archie Sonic written by Ian Flynn. This is done to sort of expand and extrapolate upon the lore for fans who are very invested in that way. For the record, I also want to say that this is the most expensive object currently of the Archie Sonic world. I think it goes on average for like a thousand dollars. What? Yeah. Wait, did this have, like, a low fucking print run? Probably. I don't know. Regardless, there is a lot, a lot of interesting supplemental information here. So I collected, I read through it myself, and I collected some, uh, some interesting things. So, on Sonic, that's not his birth name. It's not given, but it's said that his birth name was named after his grandfather's, but had his name legally changed to Sonic. Isn't it Maurice? Uh, Oakville? Something, I don't know. The book itself doesn't actually give Sonic's birth name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there is some canon where it's either Maurice or Oakville. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about Sonic <laughs> being named fucking Maurice. 
It's kind of funny. <laughs> no, on. listen, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like it's just like midway through like like an argument, Sonic and Sally, you know, and Sally's just like, Maurice, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Sally's just like, whoa, hey. Whoa, wait, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. You? You're breaking out the, 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 the dead name, bro. Like <laughs> the <come> dead on. <laughs> name. <laughs> bro. Yeah, he 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 makes sure that everyone calls him Sonic, man. Sonic is trans, I guess. <laughs> Sonic is a trans allegory. Ah, oh, shit. Well, hey, listen. We we fully support that, by the way. If you feel that way, we are cool with it. Yeah. We, 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 we support you. Trans rights, motherfuckers. So much trans rights up in here. Now, Bunny's backstory is also given. She was born in the Southern Baronies just before the Great War. Her parents died in the war, and she was then raised by her uncle Beauregard and Aunt Lulu May. However, when her uncle Bo told her that her parents died in service to the Overlanders, it was due to the fact that there was long-standing tensions between the Baronies and the Kingdom of Acorn. She would reject the notion that her parents were traitors and would run away from home. She hobbled together a small farm on the outskirts of the kingdom, but was captured by SWAT bots, put into a roboticizer leading to Sonic and the Freedom Fighters saving her, but still partially roboticized. And she took it well, even introducing herself as Bunny Rabot in a pun on her name. Ha, cute. Very cute. Vector was born in Down Under, which we kind of have learned occasionally through, you know, various slip-ups with his nomenclature and his dialect. But he was abandoned at birth. He and the other orphans were taken in by an unknown figure known only as father to them, these other orphans would later become the Down Under Freedom Fighters, but Vector had a falling out with them and left to Angel Island meeting Knuckles. He also used to be a lot skinnier, what used to be the fastest of the Chaotix, but was a glass cannon. Mighty helped train him and bulked him up, exchanging his speed for strength. For the record, uh, this father character is unseen for the comic as a whole, so when I read that, the first image that popped into my mind was father from Codename Kids Next Door. I don't Jesus know. Jesus Christ, no, 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 come on. I, I don't know why, but that's just the name to image that formed in my brain. Now, the Kingdom of Acorn. The kingdom is basically analogous to America in Mobius. The kingdom is, and this is a direct quote, the center of the Western world existed for almost 300 years with a lineage of 13 kings, and Sally Acorn is the first woman to be in line for the throne. That actually explains a lot as to why Max is a fucking maniacal despot. Yep, true. Now, each king, once they pass the throne on, was given a title to represent the history of their rule. The first king, Alexander the Unifier, was the one to unite several Mobian races to build Mobitropolis, which was the first multicultural society on Mobius. Further, King Julius the Enlightened would find the source of all, and would create the bonding ceremony that the next in line of the throne would submerge into to cement their claim as the heir to the throne. King Sylvanus the Resolute put the... And again, this is a directly from the book put the southern barons to heel after them being given power by his grandfather, King Abraham the Generous. While his rule is controversial among scholars, it is said that his seeking of power and solidarity stayed with the citizens, and they stayed unified during the Great War. And in case you're curious, King Max's title is King Maximilian the Cursed. <laughs> Fitting. Eggman. His family lineage can be traced back 400 years, the earliest known by the name of Brutus Kintobor, though 10,000 years ago an Ivan Kintobor was confirmed. Eggman took the name Robotnik from his mother's maiden name. As such, Gerald Robotnik is his mother's father. The Eggman Empire hierarchy is as follows. Eggman, the Emperor, Orbot and Cubot, his right-hand aides, 
The various Grand Masters, the leaders of Eggman's Dark Egg Legion, the Legionnaires, and then the foot soldiers of the Eggman Empire. More importantly, let's let's talk about some Echidna lore for a minute. Dimitri was actually not the first Enerjack, but rather the third. The first was actually named Enerjack. He was just simply a scientist studying the Chaos Force. His partner in work and love, Aurora Law, who would later be known as simply Aurora in the Echidna mythos, would be contacted by the ancient walkers and shown the Chaos Force's wonders. However, Enerjack became corrupted by the power and came into conflict with the walkers and his former love. He was too powerful to be outright destroyed, so he was scattered throughout the Chaos Force. This spirit would come to possess Echidnas and turn them into Enerjack. Enerjack too was a figure forgotten to history, but it is known he was a researcher from Albion looking for a way to properly fight the Order of Ixis during the Forgotten Wars. The experiment went too well, and both sides of the conflict had to come to a truce to fight Enerjack. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yes. Enerjack 3 was, of course, Dimitri when he used the Chaos Siphon to absorb the Chaos Emeralds, lifting Angel Island, and the power would later be drained by Mammoth Mogul. Of course, Enerjack 4 would become Knuckles, which came about due to Phanidivus fucking about with Knuckles, uh, let's say tampering with his genes that his father did. Locke sacrificed himself to free Knuckles from the Hex. Thank you, Locke. One time. And uh, here's a little fun fact. So if you remember the Iron Queen, her techno magic, it turns out that techno magic was actually derived and corrupted from Ixus magic. Pretty cool. Yeah, Bean, our boy who got a really good glove in these comics, got a potential origin in that he was a bioweapon dark magic hybrid created by Dr. Pin and the Battlebird Armada. A long-lost mutant from the Forgotten Wars, or an alien trying to fit in on Mobius? Eh, well, Bark won't confirm or deny anything. <laughs> now, on Silver, the way time travel works in this universe is that when Silver travels through time, he becomes decoupled from time, so he's unaffected by any changes he did in the past. And, Blaze's pyrokinesis... She actually got them from the Soul Emeralds themselves. The Jeweled Scepter is what anchors Blaze's world to Sonic's multiverse, which... That's actually going to be a point that's going to be brought up moving forward. Just keep that in the back of your head. Yes. Now, my favorite topic now. Scourge. He actually could use the Chaos Emeralds to go super. Although, it's not known if he would look more like Super Sonic if he used them. Or if Sonic used Anarchy Barrel to go super, he would look more like Super Scourge. I don't know. Just something to bring up. Anti-Tails. Miles. He's said to prefer using magic instead of his technological know-how, which kind of plays off Tails' heritage as the Chosen One. The Anarchy Barrel themselves look pretty close to Chaos Emeralds, except that they're all green, which probably suggests that there was no great harmony on Moebius. However, like unlike the Chaos Emeralds, which have a balance of positive and negative energy, Anarchy Barrel are purely negative energy. Makes sense. Power rings on Moebius are also harder to come by and come with negative effects. Sane in Rosie, anti-Amy. Angel Island's equivalent on this world is the sunken Demon Island, protected by Overseer Onux, which is, of course, anti-Knuckles, and is Oderic's enforcers, presumably consisting of Anti-Vector, SBO, Charmy, and so on. The main city is called Atlantopolis and is protected by an air bubble powered by six pieces of anarchy barrel instead of some sort of master barrel. Hmm, interesting. Now, to bring it back to Sonic Chronicles, uh, the Nocturnus clan. They are still stuck in the Twilight Cage. They better stay there. Having come from Albion, the Dark Legion are their descendants, but have inferior technology compared to them. As we implied, 
Power rings are byproducts of the Chaos Emeralds, which are energy given physical form. If multiple power rings are consumed at once, they grant abilities similar to Ixus magic. Nate Morgan found a way to manufacture them, a process perfected by Uncle Chuck. Now Nicole utilizes excess power to make a ring or two a day in New Metropolis's Nike of Rings. We have seen two super forms that are from the games that were not in the book. Burning Blaze and Super Silver. The book does detail them, despite not appearing in the main comic, and this is used to sort of indicate that the games are part of the comics canon. Interesting. The Little Planet and the Time Stones from Sonic CD are closely guarded secrets of Albion. Collecting all seven Time Stones can grant the user total control of time itself. Other protectors of the Little Planet are rumored to exist, such as the Knight of Kronos and an Owl Spirit named Nicholas of Time, which for the record is a character who appeared in Sad AM. It was an episode where Sonic and Sally traveled back in time to try to stop Robotnik's invasion before it began. Okay, so let's talk about the world for a second. So a world map is actually given in this book, showing how the continents are shaped. It doesn't seem to be the scale, but we can have some fun with this. So please display it if you have the image, as you can see right here. North America and Eurasia are connected by a large land bridge. New Metropolis is on North America's east coast, east coast, best coast, somewhere in New Jersey. The Mobian jungle is in Florida. Boys, me, <laughs> Florida me and Alberta are in the jungle. We're in the fucking jungle. <laughs> Florida men rise up. Yes, Florida men rise up. The Eggman Empire is mostly comprised of former overlander territories scattered across the central and west coast of America. Very fitting. United Federation is mostly in Western Europe, and it was formerly the Iberian Peninsula. So, to talk about the overlanders for a second, they are genetic cousins to the Mobians, as they all had humans as a common ancestor. Mobians tended to not live in large groups, making cities like Numa Metropolis a rarity. In contrast, the remaining humans live in a loose confederations of city-states called the United Federation. The distinction is that overlanders have eight fingers, as humans have ten. The United Federation existed in secret. If one was discovered by overlanders or Mobians, they would act as if they were the remaining humans on Mobius to protect the other settlements. Their military is comprised of the Guardian Unit of Nations, which is gun. Each city-state has one commander of the local gun branch answering to their general, Commander Abraham Tower, the most American name I've ever heard, who in turn only answers to the President of the United Federations in Central City. Other leaders of the Federation include Mayor of Station Square, Bullion, and most interestingly of all, Princess Elise of Soleana. Again, cementing the fact that the games are canon. Very interesting use of, of Princess Elise, I, I must say. Overlanders discovered the United Federation and worked to reintegrate humans into Mobius thanks to what was deemed the Heritage Project. After the Great War, Overlanders would assimilate into the United Federation thanks to this project. In Down Under, the coastal town of Priscilla was a colony of the Kingdom of Acorn. As a result, many residents deferred to the Republic of Acorn. Also important to note that it does not appear that they have voting representation on the council. Just bringing that up. Speaking of game concepts, Space Colony Arc. It was a project done by the Overlanders as part of their 100 Moons of Mobius satellite program, but dwindling resources forced them to abandon the project. 
And on that note, the Great War began when Overlanders sought to claim bountiful lands for themselves. The Southern Baronies would conspire with the Overlanders to fight the, quote, oppressive kingdom of Acorn. The final page of which describes Solaris, Iblis, and Mephilus of Sonic 06. If you needed reiteration that the games are canon to the comic, here you go. Okay, final section. We are going to be talking about unused concepts. And also how certain things played out towards the end due to the lawsuit. So let's start with the unused concepts. Right when Ian started working on the comic, Jazzware Toys got the license for Sonic. And they did often do toy and comic package releases. One idea being a clear blue Sonic toy that they did release, but told Archie they wanted this to be part of their continuity. Ideas Ian had were to either be a clone made by Eggman or a piece of chaos that got lobbed off after fighting Mogul. But the idea was discarded after any pitch was made. Good. That's just weird. Yeah, yeah, good. We described this a little earlier, but for clarity's sake, Ian did want to put Omega into the comic earlier than Sonic Universe number three. But his previous ideas, which involved him being involved with the death of Tommy Turtle and being at the Rays of Knothole, were both rejected by Sega because they did not want a main character to be involved in acts of mass murder. Fair enough. Fair enough. The original idea for the Enerjack Reborn arc was that Remington was going to be turned into Enerjack, not Knuckles. But since too much time of the arc would have been spent refreshing the reader on who Remington is, the idea was moved around. Thank you. I think that was a very, very, very good change. The fact that Knuckles becomes Enerjack is an extremely good one, considering all of the background lore and all of the, the Christ allegory stuff that we've talked nonstop about. Yeah, it was a perfect fit at the end of yes. the day. Absolutely. One idea for the Dragon Kingdom Freedom Fighters, who we've never seen before and were implied to be killed off by Monkey Khan, they were originally going to be an homage to the Furious Five from Kung Fu Panda, but the idea was scrapped and ultimately were never seen. So the Sonic Chronicles adaption, seen in issue 191, we did talk about this, was originally intended to be canon with Julie Sue in the, the place of Tails during that story. Assumedly, Sega rejected the idea and brought forth the Another Side, Another Story concept, non-canon ways to adapt future releasing Sonic games. The original plan for issue 225, it would have ended with Sally's roboticization, but the new editor at this time, Paul Kaminsky, thought it was not enough to celebrate Sonic's 20th anniversary, so they worked the Genesis art into it, and Sally's roboticization was moved to issue 230, as we know. Yep, it makes sense if they're going to do an anniversary arc to do it like that. In issue 237, someone was seen to be following Sonic and Team Fighters, revealed to be Lita and Lyco, but originally it was going to be Hershey St. John, revealed to be alive and was going to be part of the Secret Freedom Fighters, but replaced with Lika and Lido, as we had sort of described. The Chaotix quest arc was going to be a little different. The arc would have been focused on Mighty and Ray's travels to begin with, while Espio sends word to the Shinobi clan. Mighty and Ray would have found former Robians left de-roboticized without homes, specifically Liza the Chameleon. A friend of Espio's from Rainbow Valley, and due to the locals not having a concept of robots, she was exiled out of fear. Which, for the record, we did kind of discuss something along this. This was a prose that Ian wrote for one of our patrons, KJB, who kindly shared it with us. So, you can look at that episode if you want to have more details about that little tidbit of information. Absolutely. In that prose, as well as this concept, Lisa was sent to be a part of the Shinobi clan since she was rejected from her home, and she was sent to spy on Mighty and Rey. Not very good at it, not great with camouflaging, but part of the story would be to learn for her to open up to people. 
Kind of like what happened with Mighty's sister, ironically enough. Yeah. So the I feel like the arc was reworked for Mighty's sister specifically. For Worlds Collide, Sega and Capcom were extremely supportive of the final project. The only reject that we know of was that, and I cannot fucking believe they did not do this. <laughs> Base and Metal Sonic were going to have a fusion via the Super Adapter, but the idea was rejected by Sega or Capcom. Cowards. What cowards. 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 Literal cowards. How the fuck could you reject that? That is the most raw shit I've ever heard in my entire life. Could you imagine the fucking end scene where it could have been Sonic and Mega Man looking on in shock as Base and Metal Sonic are this fucking horrible looking fusion? It would have been so fucking sick. Oh my god, I'm thinking about it now. It would have been so fucking raw. Hey yo, artist, artist, any artist listening to this? That's a request. Yeah, that's a request. We're we're gonna we're gonna need a we're gonna need a, a Metal Sonic base fusion uh, ASAP. Okay, we must talk about how the lawsuit impacted the comic specifically. Issue two forty three. It underwent several rewrites to dance around the concepts that Penders introduced into the comic, despite them playing major parts in the story and can even be physically seen in the book due to the changes in font. Such instances include rewriting the Dark Egg Legion and calling them Eggman's Army, or troops, and calling Albion the Echidna Homeland. Yes, we, we made mention of this, and it's very obvious. Issues 244 to 246 were entirely rewritten to remove the Knuckles-centric characters. Namely, of course, Linda and her Legionnaires, as they were told to be part of the story per issue 245's original solicitation. Shard and the Kruzu hybrid were not part of the original draft, and thus were not going to be a part of the arc before the rewrite. This explains why everyone fucking disappears. <laughs> it also explains why Shard just kind of shows up out of nowhere too. And the art of the covers were edited as well. In issue 244, Julie Sue was going to be on the cover next to Amy, and 245's cover was going to be shown Sonic being entangled by Leandaw's whip, not the Kredzu vines. And the ending, obviously, of the Endangered Species arc was supposed to be entirely different. However, Ian only ever said it was supposed to be a happy ending. I think Julius Sue survives in that arc, if, if, if there's going to be a happy ending. I, I'd say bittersweet is the right word, not happy. I, I, would, I would vastly prefer bittersweet where... The rest of the Echidna characters are wiped out, but Knuckles still has Julie Sue. It's sort of like uh, there is kind of hope for the species kind of thing. Like Knuckles has to like claw and fight for Julie Sue if they can get anyone at all. Also, I'd just like to say, and this is something that we're going to talk about here, because again, this is the last time we're talking about Penders in any capacity. Somebody brought this up uh, when I was reading through the site I use for these comics, and um, they said that you can literally see Thrash as the will of the lawsuit directly taking effect against Ian, who is fighting to try and keep these characters in some fashion, despite how stupid a lot of them are, they are just integrated into the world. Yeah, I have to agree. So it's an interesting thing to think about. Definitely a very interesting thing to think about. And on that note, Sonic Universe 46 and 47 obviously ended up being edited as well. Two characters named Bo Sparrow and Thorn the Lop effectively are replacements for Robbo the Hedge and his wife Marion, both Pender's characters, and those characters would serve as stand-ins for them. In-universe, it was said that Rob and Marion disappeared, 
which I guess isn't wrong in the grand scheme of things. So Rob's removal in 46 changed the off panel for that issue as well. Originally, it was the Chaotix looking for a Sonic lookalike, meaning Rob, but Vector ends up finding Scourge. Now, we also have to talk about what is arguably one of the biggest open-ended threads for this entire lawsuit scenario. Due to the lawsuit and reboot of the comic, this left a lot of threads dangling and a change of narrative. In October 30th, 2015, Ian began to independently work on the Lost Hedgehog Tales, which are his abridged notes of his long-term plans for the series, if there was no reboot, which supposedly stretched to issue 300. However, only one chapter was released due to ongoing litigation of certain characters he was writing about. Ian did say that it is entirely possible for IDW to finish not only the reboot continuity, but the original continuity from Archie as well. Thus, this one chapter will be all we have. And for the record, if you don't follow Ian on Twitter, he regularly posts a little hashtag called Knowing Smile whenever someone asks him about something, anything that he's working on that happens to end up being a big thing. And apparently, someone asked him something in relation to Archie Sonic, and all he did was post hashtag Knowing Smile. So, let's wait. Was this recent? How recent? A couple months ago. Okay. Interesting. We also mentioned earlier that Ian said he was not allowed to discuss cut content from Archie Sonic that surrounded the lawsuit, meaning he possibly posted the following with knowledge that he was not allowed to do so, but potentially the statute of limitations could have expired by now, leading to Ian do every so often talking about the old Archie Sonic plans in his podcast. With that being said, let's begin. The whole storyline was originally going to last 50 issues from 225 to 275. The idea was having the Freedom Fighters suffer a loss they couldn't easily bounce back from, which was Sally's robotization. Ian actually considered killing Antoine off after his sacrifice of taking on the self-destructing Metal Sonic. However, due to the fan response to Sally's robotization and Antoine's actual sacrifice, Ian easily sided with letting him live, which, dude, what the fuck? Are you fucking critting me? Nah, that man wanted to make people suffer. He said, "Nah, dog, we're we're making them suffer. We're we're bringing in, we're putting the Kino in despair, Kino." Yeah, exactly. So, an early draft of the loyalty story arc, which was two thirty seven to two thirty eight, was Team Fighters finding Hershey St. John, as we previously mentioned. It would have been revealed that Hershey had to go into deep cover as a member of the Dark Egg Legion and wasn't able to contact Jeffrey. But when told of his betrayal, she would have returned to New Metropolis, obviously. A story we recently covered, the Olympic Trials in issue 242, obviously was done at Sega's request, and that had to have a lot of plans be shifted around. Namely, the Heroes arc, which was 239 and 240, was going to be a three-parter, not a two-parter. 239 and 240 would have focused on Team Fighters and Freedom fighting their respective battles as normal. However, issue 241 was going to focus on the secret Freedom Fighters and how they helped turn the tide of the battle Team Freedom was fighting. In the end, the secret Freedom Fighter moments were reworked into the final story in issue 240. 241's unraveling story was planned as several B stories. The story would have also ended with Nagus just tricking Jeffrey, but not being satisfied with that ending, Nagus possessing Jeffrey was the final direction the story would go. Right move. Right move. Yes, right move. Fitting ending for that character. Team Fighter's battle with the Kruzu was originally going to be paired with the Olympic trial story in 242. But when the trial story ended up being longer than intended, probably by Sega, the Kruzu find ended up being shown in 241. 
That's the end of the Lost Hedgehog Tales. The following comes from tidbits Ian shared on various episodes of his podcast, The Bumblecast, which you should go and subscribe and listen to. It's a great podcast. And updates from other creatives. To begin, Endangered Species was actually planned as a Sonic Universe arc, which had even some differences from the original story from the main book and the final version. Details were not given, but he just says both versions had happier endings. And Saffron, who, as we remember, Charmy's fiancé, was going to be reintroduced with a redesign done by Allie Baker, who's Ian's wife. Interesting. Very interesting. Would have, it would have been cool for, for Charmy to maybe to get... Some of his old memories back, too. That, that would have been an interesting little plot. Bunny's disappearance in 235 would have ended with her being legionized. Her shadowed cameo in Universe 49 was due to her design not being finalized, but several elements were carried over for her design post-reboot. This makes complete sense. I mean, it's foreshadowed when Beauregard talks about family being back. She would gain her robotics back at the cost of potentially her free will, which would be uh, a complete disaster. Finitivus! obviously would have been a key player to the larger arc leading to 275 and ben bates said that if the worlds collide crossover didn't move things around sally's de-robotization would have been an issue 250 probably using the crudzu hybrid reverse engineering tech that they talked about at the end of uh, endangered species now tracy yardley revealed on twitter that for the complete encyclopedia he was asked to draw a concept for a metal shadow which would have been a repurposed metal sonic but was not included in the final release. He thought of it as, quote, kinda lame, I'm thinking, not bad, but could be a lot cooler, which I do have it here. I don't think it's that bad, personally. I don't think it's that bad, but I do kind of agree. For Shadow, you, you kind of need something a little bit more, uh... A little more, like, up air, a, a little up in front, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's okay. Ian mentioned on his Twitter that he had also had plans to reveal anti-shadow, Moabian shadow. Oh my God, what could have been? But he does not go into details on said plans. I, I cannot even imagine how fucking insane that would have been. On Ian's podcast, The Bumblecast, he would often talk about unused ideas for Archie Sonic today. Some of them include... The revelation from SBO that there are other cons would have been explored, with Jun-kun being revealed to be the Oxcon. This story would have revolved around a race between Monkey Con and the Iron Queen to find these other cons, presumably based off the other animals in the Chinese Zodiac. Monkey Con wants to train them so they would not be as lost as he was, and the Iron Queen wants to use them as new weapons. Fiona wants, would realize that her relationship with Scourge is toxic and break off for him and realize she doesn't need to rely on others and be... Her own manipulative rock. Very girl funny. boss, girl queen, yeah, whatever. Girl boss, yeah, whatever. Lastly, the idea for a shape-shifting villain originated from Archie Sonic, but was repurposed for IDW Sonic in the form of the character Mimic. And as of that, that's it. That's it. That's all, at least for the preboot section of this book. And that concludes Act 2. Now we'll move on to our... Act 3, what I call What Happens Today. And once again, I like to say, this is pure speculation mode now. It is the current year, 2022. We are now 10 years since Ken Penders announced he's working on the Lorisu Chronicles. He's intending for it to be a multi-volume release, beginning from where Mobius 25 years later ended in issue 144. He wants to release this book as a digital release via his own app, selling each volume of the graphic novel through the app, and also have it include voice acting and dynamic paneling, and then and it's all released, it will re-release in all one hardcover physical book. 
So, um, how's the progress on that, buddy? Like I said, it is the current year, 2022. Ten years have passed, Ken. What's going on? So, um, I feel like now it's time that we show, uh, we talk about some of that concept art. We would like to present you with some, uh, some of the concept art. I would like you to note the artistic quality of it, the high quality craftsmanship, and most importantly, uh, the amount of love and effort put into these, uh, the, these wonderful creations. Please look and enjoy as you view this, as we kind of talk about what's going to happen moving forward for this comic. We are, so we are doing Worlds Collide next. Worlds Collide is our next issue set. That is going to be a very long episode because it is going to be 12 issues. And oh boy, it's it's going to be a lot. It, it's going to be a lot, but it's going to be fun, guys. It's going to be fun. Yes. After that, we begin the very special, very fun, and very new Countdown to Chaos arc. And from that moment, we are on a collision course to the end. Ken, uh, he wants to release the finished app and the hardcover print edition of Laura Sue Chronicles Beginnings at San Diego Comic-Con 2022, which is not that far away from the time of this recording. The hardcover book will collect all of the Mobius 25 years later stories published by Archie Comics from Sonic 131 to 144 and followed by new material created for the app, including a sneak preview of Shattered Tomorrows, which is the first volume of the Laura Sue Chronicles. The app, per Ken's words, features French, German, Polish, Portuguese, Russian, Spanish, and Swedish translations with more on the horizon, including Arabic, Chinese, and Japanese. <laughs> with what money? And speaking of what money, Ken Penders has a roadmap for this to be a seven-volume series. Seven volume. Book one. Book one is to connect it to Archie Sonic. Two will be focusing on the Guardians. Three on the Dark Legion. Four on Lorisu's journey. Five supposedly will be the resolution to the cast of the Sonic characters he created, such as Queen Alicia, Prince Elias, and Jeffrey St. John. Uh... <laughs> Six leads to the climax, and seven is supposed to be the legacy, Lorisu's journey coming to an end. Will we ever get it? I kind... Uh, who, I, I know. I just, who now is, San Diego sure, Comic-Con. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Will we give it the breakdown on the Archie Sonic Digest? If if you really want it that bad, we have a Patreon for a reason. Patreon goal. It's a Patreon goal. You, we hit the goal. We fucking do it. That's 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 the only that's the only way I'm fucking covering it. We hit the goal on Patreon. You want us to fucking cover it so bad? Fund it. Now, there's another fun story I would really love to talk. We talked about it while it was happening in our pre-shows, which happened to be Patreon exclusive. But I lovingly call this as the Scourge incident. Take it away, Aaron. Oh, yes. So there was a fan group that basically came out and said, Hey, we got the license to do a Scourge comic from Ken Penders with his oversight. And everyone was like, what? How? And Ken proudly announced it. You want to know what also happened about that comic? The main guy working on it was outed as a neo-Nazi. Artist, I believe it was. Yes, main artist was outed as a neo-Nazi. This book was called Scourge the Speed Demon from Rush Comics. And we're reading you the 
official Twitter announcement. Rush Comics, in association with Ken Penders, is proud to announce production on a four-issue miniseries, Scourge the Speed Demon, the official revival of the king. Hashtag Scourge comic, hashtag Scourge. Follow Scourge and his Hellfire gang as they conquer the wasteland. Wow. Wow. Now, for the record, this was Patreon-funded, thus a commercial product, licensed by Ken Penders, was hit by a wave of criticism, as you can imagine. Fans are a little upset that Penders licensed out the evil version of Sonic, but the Scourge version in particular, which Ken himself had no involvement with. The recontextualization of Scourge, obviously conceived by editor Mike Pellerito and artist Patrick Spazatine, and was developed into the fan-favorite character via Ian Flynn and Tracy Yardley. By the way, a little, little bit of a humble brag here, but I am proud to say that we, at the Archie Sonic Digest, are a small production, but I am proud to say that we have more patrons than they ever did. Bless up, guys. Bless up. Bless up. Bless up. Gaming out here <laughs> in 2022. We're based. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, goes without saying, though, uh, people did kind of question the premise of a Scourge comic with no Sonic. That speaks for itself, I believe. As we previously mentioned, the people dug. Looking at the people behind this comic. Team's previous comic, Rush, for which the company is named, had a little bit of a, a little bit of an interesting scene where the hero of the comic, uh, strips a pair of female villains in publics because he thought they were hot. By the way, I also want to point something out. When the news was popping off, uh, Ian would say in his group Discord that the writer of this comic paid for a review slash critique of his comic book. Ian commented on that scene in particular, and the writer tried to defend himself by saying, But bro, it's not real. It's not. It's fiction, bro. It's, it's fiction, bro. It's fiction. It's not real, bro. Okay. All right, dude. All right. On top of that... It was discovered that the lead artist of this project um, was connected to a lot of uh, a lot of interesting accounts, namely uh, PragerU, Stephen Crowder, the Trump family, so on and so forth. Also pointing out that they seem to like a lot of tweets from prominent right-leaning political figures. An Islamophobic tweet from Paul Joseph Watson was singled out. So the result of which the discourse became that this artist was told described to be a white supremacist and as such would be the only thing people would talk about besides ken penders and his involvement <laughs> when ken, when ken was asked about the situation his response was quote i didn't check the political leadings of the people i'm doing business with because i don't think it's relevant nor did i think being a fan of ian flynn was relevant when taking on a job for someone to do something for me i'm a give a person a chance kind of guy end quote how benevolent of you ken I mean, do we even need to say anything? I mean, this is the same guy who fucking who fucking ripped from the Holocaust. <laughs> this is the this is the this is the same. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, what what else what else do you need? What else? What 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 other what other what other argument is there? Right? There's no other fucking argument. This guy, I swear, I swear, I swear to God, I swear to God, we're so close to never having to talk about him again. So. Fucking close. The official Twitter for Scourge the Speed Demon releases the following statement in order to clarify the points of controversy. To tackle something directly, direct quote, Our artist does not believe in hateful ideologies, and we do not support nor condone such beliefs. It started with a baseless accusation and an attempt to debase our comic and our team. We will not tolerate any harassment. We understand we are an unknown factor in creating the next Scourge miniseries, but focusing on someone's outdated following feed does not confirm such awful accusations. Said rumor has spiraled based on misinterpretation. 
Penders has licensed the character of Scourge to Rush Comics. Not for nearly enough for the amount rumored as we only have Scourge. He is not creatively involved. The entire comic will be our own vision. We are just fans that saw an opportunity to work with a character we love. Now that that's cleared up, we look forward to releasing these issues as they come out to share with the public. Now, uh, I need to talk about the obvious PR failure that was here. Um, there is a very common rule in public relations. Do not restate the charge. Because now you create a situation where p normal people who don't know what's going on can look at this uh, statement and think, wait, do they believe in hateful ideologies, though? I, Holy what is fuck. Mm, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, I mean, they're basically doubling down. Like, 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 you, like, you restate the charge, you put yourself at double down risk. It's like, come on, man. Oh, my fucking God. These guys are stupid. And uh, around November 17th or 18th, the people realized that the credits tweet under the announcement for Scourge of Speed Demon was deleted, probably to disassociate themselves with the controversy. Said artist would later unfollow all the accounts she was seen following. Genuinely, it is legitimately within the realm of possibility that she had a change of heart and that her Twitter account was inactive in the time since then. However, she also would say that she was following, quote, mainstream political accounts and, quote, I am an Aussie. I don't know nor give a fuck about American politics. This does not spark confidence. <laughs> oh, God, Jesus! And then, on November 19th, the Scourge the Speed Demon Twitter account vanishes, along with the Patreon page. Having collected $29 by that point... All mentions of it have been scrubbed from the Rush website, and the writer posts the following on his personal account. We are scrapping the Scourge comic due to the sheer toxic reactions and presumptions from the community. We wanted to work with this character and create a story and world fitting of the king to share with the people who want to see Scourge make a return. It's painfully clear to us that no matter how high quality the series would have turned out, it still would have been shit on regardless due to the extreme pre-existing biases and unfair judgment before an actual issue was released. What we simply saw was an exciting opportunity to work with a character we all enjoyed quickly turned into a shitstorm. We tried to bring Scourge back only to be met with hostility and unacceptable behavior. We're not going to subject ourselves to work with that kind of abuse just for a creative endeavor when we have other opportunities lined up to focus our time and talents into. We wanted to thank the people who were kind enough to offer us encouragement and support we have already refunded donations in full. Uh, by the way, the writer for Rush Comics would soon thereafter delete his own Twitter account. Bye. So now, look, I do have to comment about this. Look, if you somehow come across this, if you're listening to this, release it anyway. Make it anyway. If you have such a strong belief that it would be good, the end product would be good, just make it. Just release it. Because the problem isn't the fact that you had the, the white supremacist allegations or even the scourge thing that you all together. The problem was that you signed a deal with Ken Penders. Of all people. Did you really? <laughs> do you really want to have your little book here with in associate with Ken Penders up top? Do you really think that would make for good PR in the year of our Lord 2022? Did you really think that? I can't, man. I, I I have nothing more to say than just Jesus fucking Christ. You played yourself. <laughs> you really? Yeah. Yeah. And that brings the Scourge incident to a close, but we have something else to talk about. That was a little bit of a hot topic when this came out. I call it the NFT saga. 
Oh my god, that's right! I forgot I scrubbed it from my mind! <laughs> alright, alright. No! All right. Let's do this real quick. February okay. 1st, 2022. Ken Penders announces he will be releasing an NFT set of the characters he created. Scourge, Julie Sue, a.k.a. Shade. That's a whole other thing. I'll touch on that in a minute, okay? Green Knuckles, which is Chaos Knuckles. For the re- I don't know what the... <laughs> He, he just said, hello, I am releasing Green Knuckles as an NFT. <laughs> uh, uh, oh my uh, fucking god! <laughs> uh, like, like, can you, can you imagine, like, going to, like, w- w- I don't even know how NFT auctions work. Like, like some, like, real-life NFT auction, and someone brings up the Green Knuckles NFT on their screen, and people start bidding for it, and they're like, one million dollars for Green Knuckles! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, also, Jeffrey St. John and Robo Robotic included. And, on that note... Ken would later say that they will be priced at $100,000 each. Who would, who would, this is literally the biggest grift I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay, to start with, let's get something painfully obvious out of the way. Um, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are not good. They harm the environment with the processing power transaction can take. Claim of ownership via the blockchain is shaky at best. Let's just get that out of the way. Now. It's a fucking scam! Bad. Bad. Despite the high price, Ken said this wasn't about the money. Quote, other matters take precedence. In addition, he said his lawyers were involved in the decision process for the project. Hold the thought you have on that. On the topic of Julie Sue, a.k.a. Shade, we're going to circle back to the Sonic Chronicles situation. For some reason, I I legit don't know how he came up with this conclusion. I really don't. But he said that he thinks that because the characters from Sonic Chronicles were derived from his characters at Archie Sonic, he somehow thinks he now owns them. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know what the rationale is. But here we are. Look, I'm going to be honest. I, re- I don't think there's any disagreement when you say Shade was inspired by Julie Sue. But look, Ken is clearly playing legal chicken when he said that, okay? And in addition, in the NFT art he made for Julie Sue, it's a half-and-half half shot of her normal look and her, quote, Shade armor. According to Ken, Sega let the trademarks to Chronicles expire, so now he says Shade goes to him by default. No! <laughs> And apparently he said if you chalk up the 100k, you can see proof of that. There's some... I, I don't... Look. Pay, pay me $100,000 to see a napkin that says I own shade on it. <laughs> also, um, the recently released Sonic Encyclopedia, uh, they did not cite Ken as a trademark owner in the book's copyright page. So, look, folks, I have three theories. I have three theories here. Ken, number one, he's trying to drum up hype for the Laura Sue Chronicles with the shocking price tag. Okay, I think we can agree with that much, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a grift, bro. He's, he's just trying to, to get people to, to, to give him attention. Number two, he's trying to put his theory that he does own Shade to the test. If Sega ignores him, that's proof enough. And the 100k price tag is just to get Sega's attention in particular. And number three... As we discussed, while not officially confirmed, 
It's generally assumed that Archie does not recognize the ownership that Ken has to the characters he created. But in my opinion, I have a theory that... Ken is trying to use the blockchain, the NFT situation, to try to cement ownership of all his characters. With that being said, I'm going to go a step further with this theory. Once again, 10 years since the Lower Sioux Chronicles was announced, I really legitimately believe Ken is trying to cement his full rights before releasing anything in regards to the Lorisu Chronicles. If he does release the Lorisu Chronicles at San Diego Comic-Con this year, I will not only be shocked, but I will buy it if I can. I'll fucking do it. You motherfuckers watch me. I'll buy it. I swear. You're you're insane. I know. No, bro. No. You don't don't give that man your money. You don't you don't need to do that. Listen. Listen. All right. We're we're basically at the end of the episode. All right, we've covered all the legal stuff. We've talked in very specific language when it comes to that. So I'm going to give you guys a little assessment of all this situation. The only reason that he has not been shot down and nuked from orbit by Sega and Archie is because Sega doesn't want to deal with it anymore. Ken doesn't own these characters. If anything, you want to know what Ken does own? Jack. He owns nothing. The only reason he has any rights to use these characters is because Sega let him. And they let him walk away. They had the fucking case. But what's done is done. Mm-hmm. But you want to know what is it? The fact that Ken has been walking around for 10 plus years acting like he won the case and that he's better than everyone for it. So I'm going to say one last thing. And I feel like this is maybe where we should sort of let the, the, the should let Ken leave our minds forever. You are a sad, pathetic little man. And you truly have given yourself to the sad idea that just because you own a bunch of cartoon animal characters, it somehow makes you better than other people, including other people who are writing about this cartoon animal character. Please stop, get help, get off Twitter, touch grass. Now, the final notes we're going to end off with. The comic from 252 onward will be rebooted. However, it's a soft reboot, actually. From the stories that we are going to read, we're going to generally assume most of the events in the world played out the same, just in different ways or context. Do I need to say more about Knuckles? Uh, Yeah. We are going to have to sort of bring this up more in Countdown to Chaos, but I will make mention of it here. The Archie characters' experiences of the main core cast of the Freedom Fighters are retained. Which means their character development is retained moving forward. That is very, very important. I I touched upon this a little earlier, but I want this to be the end of the saga for Ken Penders. Not just for us, but for the Sonic community as a whole. There is nothing to gain out of milking lols out of Ken. Time has shown that Ken, Ken Penders is essentially the high school football captain. He knows he peaked in his career writing for the Sonic comics, and he's doing everything he can to get those days back, but also to maintain relevance. Which is why, in my opinion, he's constantly stirring on Twitter, posting anything and everything to stir the pot and muddy the waters, to the point where Ian Flynn blocked him on Twitter. I say we follow his example. The reason why I went so in-depth as I could for this one episode is because I want this all to be us looking back and coming to this conclusion, we have a better future looking forward. Not just for the reboot of Archie as we're going to read, but also for the success of IDW Sonic and the franchise in general. 
We are going to move into a Sonic comic that has no influence from Ken Penders, and it will be better for it. Absolutely. And I think that is the prevailing sentiment. For as much as I like pre-reboot Archie and a lot of the concepts in it, because believe me, I do really like a lot of the ideas in Ian Flynn's run. They are unfortunately shackled to a hundred plus issues of shit that just feels bad. And that is the truth. Yes, Ian does a great job given with what he's working with. But the problem is that it's not his. It is inherently built off the back of somebody who is disingenuous, poorly understands how to write and compose characters and plot lines, and has all this extra baggage that he has to drag along with him. I have not read all of post-reboot Archie. I will be reading through it as we go through the comic in preparation for the episodes. But I can tell you that something that you need to go into when we return from Worlds Collide is to come in with an open mind. Because we are going to be exploring what a world built and bred by in is going to look like. Our first glance at it. And I think you are going to find something very, 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 very special within. So now everyone... I want you all to say, number one, thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you gained a lot of insight from this. And I also do want to note, Worlds Collide chronologically will be following this episode. So we will be enjoying that. And then we'll be moving on to Countdown to Chaos from issue 252 onward. And with that being said, I hope you guys enjoyed the regular show. I hope you guys are willing to tag along with us. You know, subscribe on YouTube, like, comment, etc. And join us for this ride. It'll be a fun time. We will see you all next time on the regular show of the Archie Sonic Digest. And one more note before we go. So, uh, you remember Sonic movie? You remember the second Sonic movie that just came out? Right. Yeah, there's, uh, there's some stuff in there. Last time I'm going to mention him, but, uh, Ken was kicking around some ideas about, uh, some echidna stuff in that movie. Let's see it. Let's see you try and, uh, do it, buddy. Because uh, you think dealing with Archie and Sego is bad? Yeah, Paramount, you're done. That's the episode. Thanks for watching, and see you guys in Worlds Collide.